Then in Lorraine Warren, I curse you to hell! That's what the occultist would say, right, guys? I don't know, but Tom Slick used to say, Yay! <laughs> Welcome to the last three rows of horror podcast. Mike here with Big Sal and Teddy Sam. <laughs> We're back at it again here, folks. Fact and fiction in the Conjuring Universe Part 8, The Devil Made Me Do It. Sam, is this the last Conjuring episode we're going to do? No, just this one. Well, <laughs> this one and then uh, there's the one more, The Occultist from The Conjuring 3. We're going to cover that uh, like we've covered Malthus and Valak. Yeah, okay. And then we'll be done and yeah, we're going to just do some fun ones for <laughs> or you know what I mean, like some laid back So that'll be, that'll be chapter 73. <laughs> this one is definitely going to be fun though. This is a fun one. I like this one. So yeah. we're, we're still talking about The Conjuring Part 3 here, folks. And before hey. we begin, thank you for listening, streaming, subscribing on iTunes and Spotify, liking us on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget, we got an email. We want to hear from you. What's the email, Sam? Last three rows of horror at gmail.com. Before we start, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, what we've seen lately? And uh, I'll start if you guys don't mind. I recently watched The Making of Stephen King's It from 1990. I think it's called Pennywise. And uh, it's a great two-hour documentary. They cover, uh, you know, the entire cast. Unfortunately, a lot of the cast is dead. But uh, they have interviews with the cast and you know, the entire production from start to finish. And um, the one I really wanted to hear from was uh, the actress Emily Perkins, who played Beverly Marsh. I love her. She's great. She, I mean, she looks stunning. And I thought she was a great child actress. And then she's gone on to do uh, Ginger Snaps and... Um, I think she was on Supernatural, which I've never seen a single episode of Supernatural. No, neither have I. But uh, yeah, she, she's a great actress and a really good documentary. Tim Curry actually looked and sounded better after suffering that massive stroke. He's wheelchair bound. And um, I thought, you know, he sounded okay. Like you can understand what he was saying and everything. But yeah, he had some great stories of being in the makeup and everything. So yeah, very good documentary. Yeah. If you love Stephen King's It like I do. Still to this day, my favorite book of all time. Go check out that documentary. How about you, Sal? What have you seen lately? You know what? Lately, I've been I've been watching. Uh, I even went to Netflix because you know my who you know you have to deal with ads all the time, and and I was watching this New Zealand. I like New Zealand films, man. Yeah. I love New Zealand films. It, it, and I'm sorry, my knucklehead brain. Uh, I was watching this one. It was about this uh, young girl. And um, supposedly she was the end of the bloodline of a, of a werewolf. And hello, oh, I thought I got cut off there. Um, well, anyway, they had some some great makeup, great effects, and this girl had to have been maybe high school. And uh, obviously she's being teased. And, and I know I mentioned this to you guys before about you don't remember the name of it. I don't remember the damn name of it. Uh, it was on. It was on. It was on. Uh, uh, on uh, Netflix, though. You gotta um, start keeping track, like I know, IMDb right? or something. I gotta start writing this stuff down. Uh, new movie, old one. New, new, oh. new. But I'm telling you, Mike, some of these New Zealand movies that I've been watching, dude. How about Lord of the Rings? Dude, do you watch Lord of the Rings? You know, I can't. I can't. That's all in New Zealand. I, I, I think I uh, Housebound so is a New Zealand one. That's a good one. Housebound, I've seen. Of course, yeah. Dead Alive. You're wearing a Dead Alive yes, t-shirt. I'm wearing Dead Alive. That was y Peter, Peter Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, but now not at Mike brought up. Um, and Weta, Weta Studios. <laughs> yeah. Not at Mike Wingnut. 
Now that Mike brought up Stephen King, I, I'd mentioned to the fellas, for our listeners, I mentioned I watched Thinner again. Oh, yeah. An excellent movie, man. Just an excellent movie. The Curse of the White Man from Town. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Michael Constantine was the head gypsy. Yeah. He used to, he used to be in this 70s, shows, 70s show as a, he played a principal in this uh, this uh, series called Room 222. Oh. And it was a really, really, really advanced movie for back then. You know, in the 70s were, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of hippies, a lot of drugs, but uh, none of that was ever mentioned. Mentioned. None I, of that was ever. I know. I know him from uh, my Big Fat Creek wedding. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know what? You know, I ain't gonna lie to you guys. My wife was watching that. I and she watched it. She she's seen it and other oh, fun. She goes, "You want you want to watch it?" And I go and and I actually enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. well, well, I'm a big fan of. Um, oh God, what's her name? The mom. Um, Oh, she's well, got a real uh, weird La- name, Lainey. Uh, Lainey is it Kazan? Yeah, Lainey Kazan. She, she, she's funnier than shit. She used to be a fox back in the day. Oh, dude, I, I think she's a, a beautiful woman. She, she actually played in a, a Chuck Norris movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, what was that one, Mikey, where they uh, hijacked the airplane? Chuck uh, Norris. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Chuck oh, Norris. Um, I don't know a Chuck Norris movie with a plane. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. had to, he had to go save them. I thought he mostly rode horses. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, not, he not one of the Delta Forces. D- yes, Delta Force. Oh, okay. She was she was in Delta Force, and she was a Jewish woman. And uh, um, uh, these, uh, I think they were from Israel. They 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 hijacked a plane, and uh, her and Joey Bishop were a couple hmm. and joey bishop is not known for that joey bishop is a is a funny guy but it was it was i i love that. that that you know i'm not a huge chuck chuck norris fan but that one was a good one i i liked um a couple of his uh my favorite's got to be the andrew davis film code of silence because he's you know you know what i know cop in chicago that was awesome i i liked i liked uh invasion usa yeah obviously i loved him when he was fighting bruce lee uh in return of the dragon um or was that Under the Dragon? Which one was that? Neither. Um, Game of Death, maybe, or it's the one where he's he's yeah they're fighting. He rips his chest here out. Yeah, yeah. And um, Fist of Fury, maybe. And and you know, uh, not Code of Silence. The one with the with the um, oh God, Mike, it, uh, not a pyramid. It had a um, octagon. Oh, octagon. octagon was cool. Loved. I I seen that with my best friend at the theater, and that one was really cool. But then, but then I I just he just started which one ain't bad? Uh, Delta Force Two, where with these with the the Colombian drug lords, and it's Billy Drago. Oh, I never seen that one. That guy is the creepiest looking motherfucker. <laughs> Billy Drago. I don't think oh, I've yeah. seen ninety percent of these movies. You guys, uh, are oh, old yeah. school Chuck Norris movies. Yeah, yeah. or yeah. Mission uh, MIA was it a Missing in Action Part Three? That one was good. Where he finds out he, he goes back to like Thailand and he, and he finds son? out he has a son. Yeah, that, that one was awesome. Yeah, that that you, you know what that that I like, but the one I I, I remember I was watching with my mola was Lone Wolf McQuaid with yeah. Dave Carradine. Yeah, that was phenomenal, mm-hmm. phenomenal, man. But I, a decent Chuck Norris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just not a you know if it's on and there's nothing else to watch, I'll watch him and enjoy it. Yeah. But I'm not going to go looking for it. How about Sidekicks? Yeah, I've seen that. With Jonathan yeah. Brandis? Uh, yes, I did see that. Oh, I guess it's like his imaginary martial yeah, I arts. See that. Yeah. Yeah, but Joe like Piscopo. karate kid. Yeah. yeah. But I gotta but I gotta tell you guys, you guys, man, the makeup on that thinner it was disturbing, man. Mm-hmm. When he mm. when he, when they put a blanket on a Mike oh, yeah. because he was getting so old. Mm-hmm. Oh, dude. And then and then Mike pointed out the one of the greatest endings. Uh, which was just oh god, uh, the daughter ate a piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. Oh man, 
And, she ate the whole thing, I think. And 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 then, and then and then I specifically remember her saying to her father, um, "Dad, I got to go to school." And she licks the bottom of the pan yeah. one more fucking time. Yeah, that yeah. was so heart wrenching, man. I'm like, oh, yeah. dude. The gypsy's like, die clean, yeah. white man from town. Die oh, clean. Oh, dude. Yeah. How about you, Sam? What have you seen lately? Uh, well, I watched The Layer based on your guys' recommendation. Yeah. That was a really good one. Uh, yep. I liked it. it. Was kind of an action movie, kind sure. of a creature feature. Good I, one. Definitely. I still I still have to watch it. Mike told me to watch it. Yeah, because he, he said. Oh, I, I thought th you watched it. No, he said it's like a predator, like a predator movie. Kind yeah. of, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a you cool know. movie. I also it's, watched um, on Shutter came out with uh, In Search of Darkness Part Three. Oh yeah, it was a good one. Yeah, it was like you know five and a half hours or so Ooh. like that. They came up. Yeah, they've covered a lot in the past, but they covered some new. Uh, like uh, lesser known horror movies from mm -hmm. the 80s that I want to check out. I got some of them. I got to look awesome. up that movie that yeah. I watched. That's really cool. So let's jump into it, folks. This is, uh, we're going to cover some more of The Conjuring Part 3, The Devil Made Me Do It. That's right. Uh, so when we left off last episode, 12-year-old uh, David Glatzel uh, was the focus of constant attacks from a legion of demons, Remember the leader me? of which was known as the Beast. Uh, the exorcist involved in the case, uh, Father Virgilac, uh, had just been given permission to begin the process of expelling the demons from David, but the Beast also was now after the soul of Arnie Johnson, David's soon-to-be brother-in-law, as revenge for Arnie's constant challenges and taunts to the Beast to leave David alone and come into him instead. So, six months to the date after the Beast made the proclamation that he would have his revenge on Arnie, a murder would take place when Arnie was apparently possessed. Today, we are covering the multiple exorcisms of David Glatzel and the murder and trial of Arnie Johnson. So, picking the story back up, on Sunday, August 17th, Father Francis Virgilac, or Father Frank as the Warrens called him, met with Ed and Lorraine Warren at their home to devise an exorcism strategy. The Warrens, is, uh, the Warrens had known Father Virgilac since around 1972 when he worked on them on a successful exorcism of a home near Hartford on a street ironically named Beelzebub Avenue. Oh, come on. I know, right? Really? <laughs> That's what this... By the way, this whole story is what, you know, what we're covering in uh, The Devil in Connecticut, which is Gerard Brittle's book. I just put this all in there because, you know, that sometimes they're corny as fuck. Yes, you, know, you know this is a lie. Where, where, did, where did the devil, where did the, this idiot get this name, uh, Beelzebub, of uh, the first name of that's, that's that's called what, the devil? That's what the Warrens told Gerard Brittle, apparently. So they, they basically came up with it, that it's, name? It's either that the no. Warrens told them that or he... That's like that goes back that. to like ancient era. <laughs> oh, does it? Because what yeah. idiot came up with that name? Oh, Beelzebub. You yeah. mean where did that come from? Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that's from the deep. Middle East. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, <laughs> idiot. Now, while Ed wanted to perform a classic exorcism, the ritual Romanum, as we covered in the last episode, Father Virgilac's idea was to use charismatic procedures in which the positive power of God is substituted or implanted in the home to displace the negative power of the devil. In other words, light would replace darkness. So this would be the, done uh, by performing a high mass inside of the Glatzel house, and Father Virgilac would serve as the chief celebrant of the mass, which was set for Wednesday, August 20th. The intervening three days would be needed and used for preparation. Uh, compared to the horrific thought of an exorcism, a mass was a far more desirable solution to the Glatzels, and on August 20th at 3 o'clock in the afternoon... The mass began as planned with Father Virgilac as the chief celebrant and Father Sheehan, Rossi, and Cabrera as con-celebrants. The mass was a culmination of long, diligent hours of preparation by the priests. Approval for the mass had to be or obtained from the chancery. A correct liturgy had to be researched and selected, and days of prayer had to be performed by the priests. 
The preparation was interrupted by some harassment from the beast, but Father Virgilac instructed the priests never to be alone, even wanted them to sleep together in the room the same night. Ooh, what do you think happened there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> Father, no. Oh, come on. <laughs> hey, you asked for it. <laughs> no, that's the truth. For the Mass, a long wooden table functioned as an altar with an altar cloth that was brought from the Brookfield Church and draped over the table. Church candles were set up, as were gold chalices and cut glass cruets filled with wine, water, and holy oils. A historic cross that came from the original St. Joseph Church in Brookfield was also placed in the center of the altar. Attending the Masses were uh, Carl and Judy Glatzel, Carl Jr., Debbie Allen, David, Arnie Johnson, and Ed and Lorraine Warren. All were dressed in their Sunday best. Uh, Jason stayed across the street, though, with Kate Merlino in case trouble occurred. Right before the mass was about to begin, Carl Jr. said, fuck this shit, and bolted. <laughs> that would be you, Sammy. <laughs> no. <laughs> give me that pot. Give, give me that holy water. I'm thirsty. <laughs> it would probably burn as it went down. <laughs> now, the family uh, then sat in the living room, David on the couch between his father and Ed Warren. After consecrating the altar with incense, the priest began the high mass dressed in full vestments of purple, which is the color symbolic of mourning. About 10 minutes into the proceedings, David suddenly started gagging. Father Virgilac looked up from the altar and made a sign of the cross in front of David, and the attack stopped immediately. The ceremony continued with the reading of prayer uh, for the deliverance from evil in a place of a homily or a sermon, then moved on to communion. When a growling came from David's body, Father, Father Virgilac cast holy water on him with an aspergillum, and he chilled out a little bit. So uh, those who were prepared to receive it to communion and additional prayers were read, imploring the intervention of Jesus and asking for David and the family to be released from the forces of darkness. Lastly, David was blessed with holy oils. So by four o'clock, the high mass had been completed and Lorraine said that it was though uh, a heavy, dense atmosphere had been lifted. There was a difference that they could all feel and Lorraine reported to Father Virgilac at the end that there were no spirit forces in the house. But that didn't mean the entities were expelled, only meant that they had withdrawn. No one could predict whether the invading spirits would respect the aura of holiness implanted in the house and by the high mass, uh, or to defy it and return. Only time would tell. Nevertheless, all seemed fine after the high mass, and photographs were taken of David holding a cross in front of the altar, smiling freely as himself. What is what is the timeline here? What year is this supposed to be? Uh, 1980. Okay. This is yeah. 1980? Yeah, 1980. Okay, I don't know about you guys, but that more like more or less looked like uh, where for like the seventies. Yeah, I mean, well, were they, I were they say, poor? Were they real poor? Well, the, style, Lorraine, the style's always a little bit behind. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, Lorraine looks like she's been dressed like an old lady since the sixties. Definitely, she always got that like big giant beehive haircut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ed Lorraine, or I'm sorry, Ed Warren just kind of looks like a ghoul all the time. Like he's got yeah, dark bag, circles under, under his, his eyes. eyes. Yeah, <laughs> Joey bag of donuts. <laughs> Remember, I think during this whole time too, he's like still like a bus driver. He was a bus oh, driver. Oh, yeah, he, he was like a school bus driver. Oh, okay. Okay. He, remember he got caught up in some 14-year-old oh, right, girl stuff? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he looks like a pervert. Yeah. He was a pervert. <laughs> He's a pervert. Uh, well, call he was re- accused. <laughs> well, Calm replaced chaos in the Glatzel home after the high mass. David was no, long, uh, no longer felt possessed, and all the bizarre phenomenon came to an immediate halt. David was so thankful that he used his birthday money to buy the Warrens a ceramic duck as a thank you present. Quack, quack. Now, one permanent result of the exorcism was that there were no more bangings on the walls, explosions, or levitation of large objects. 
Uh, 99% of the gross manipulations of the physical environment came to a stop. The Warrens knew that if diabolical forces were responsible for the possession, the entities would back off and the siege would stop for days, but the activity would then come roaring back with twice the ferocity, and of course, that's what happened. By the end of the week, David was fully under possession again. The activity began across the street in the home of their neighbor, Kate Merlino, who received a bizarre, obscene phone call. On Monday morning, about a quarter to nine, the telephone rang on Kate's nightstand. The shades in the room were down and the drapes were closed. Kate was in her nightgown, awake for only about five minutes, but when she picked up the phone, a deep, husky whisper said that it was with her and that it could see her. To prove it, it uh, described exactly what Kate had, uh, Kate had on, right down to the color of her underwear beneath her robe and her nightgown. It then continued by saying things like, I want your body. I'm going to get your body. Sammy, <laughs> now, don't do that. <laughs> well, it didn't stop there, uh, proceeding to list off all kinds of nasty, sexually perverted things it wanted to do to Kate. Uh, when she asked who she was speaking to, the voice answered in a hostile, demanding tone to not help the Glatzels again. The call uh, scared her so much that she hung up and called the Brookfield police, who sent over a policewoman to Kate's house. Sal, so, what do you think you would say if you were uh, the demon in, in, in that phone call? Hello. Hi. I want your soul and your children. Why the children? Why not? For their souls? <laughs> but, but, but you know what, though? I, I got to ask you guys something. I got to ask you guys something. You know what upsets me when I watch possession movies? Is, 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 and I know Mike, <laughs> he probably won't voice his opinion. You know, when they go to, when they go to the, um, uh, oh my God, we're, we're, we're the main place to go to get the, okay, to, to, to do the ex, exorcism. Vatican. The Vatican. Yeah. You know what, you know what would make me happy if they, if they sent some of those dudes to, to, to some of these, uh, some of these, uh, uh exorcisms so they could see it for themselves. You know, they never, they never, they never explain it in detail on is it one guy's decision, Mike, at the Vatican? Is it a table full? You know, send those guys, mm. and, and 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 so they could so they could say, okay, wow. uh, I went to Sam's house and he was it's true that it really does go on. Or I went to Mike's house, it was all in his head. You know, I, I, I think I, there's got to be sufficient evidence, and it's I'm sure it's like some kind of council, but they look at priests as like soldiers, so it's like go go out and. Go, go fight this demon. Yeah, yeah but like, say Dominicus Asano is a scary. Yeah but, yeah, but nowadays, yeah, but nowadays, what does Mike always say? I gotta see it myself. I I would really I, I really hope this new Exorcist movie that's coming out soon, oh, yeah. which we're talking about, sends uh, more than just the word. Okay, Mike, go send you know whoever, Sammy, take whoever. No, you go. You're you're the guys that gave us the okay. We want to prove this to you. Yeah, there's you a lot know, of there's a lot I mean, of real exorcism footage in uh, William Friedkin's uh, the uh, uh, what is it called the uh, the priest of Father Amorth or something like that. Mm -hmm. One of the he's got like a oh, documentary yes. that's like it's kind of about like the exorcist, but he's like following a real priest around. Well, mm. well, well, I, I, that's why you know I remember when uh, Behind the Door came out. And the um, behind the, the trailer, green, no, no stop it, not behind the green <laughs> door, behind movie. the door, <laughs> and 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 the 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 uh, um, 
the trailer came out and that scared the shit out of me. So I was watching it again the other day because it was so old, you know, it came out, I think a year or two after Exorcist and, and, uh, the opening, uh, uh, person that was talking was the devil himself. And it said, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not what you, what people, I'm, I don't look like what people, I could be next to you and you wouldn't know it. That freaked me out more than anything. So he, he was, he was basically talking, you know, uh, to, to whoever he wanted to, to take over their mind or body and, and figures, you know, Hey Mike, I want your soul because you, you wanted to live a couple more years. But my understanding is, is always that, uh, which they said in, um, the exorcist is, is he's a liar. So, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, what the hell? The but greatest I, lie uh, the devil ever did was com- making everybody believe he didn't exist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So October 13th, 2023 is when the new sequel comes out to The Exorcist, which is supposed mm. to be a direct sequel from the first film. And, uh, well, they've, we'll they've signed on Ellen Burstyn to reprise her role as Chris McNeil. Hopefully they get Linda Blair to come back as Reagan, but uh, you know, you know, see. you know, how did she say that, Mike? You know who I, you know who would be a big help mm. is the girl that helped her with Reagan, well, the nanny, the nanny. Yes, I don't know if the actress think, is still alive. I think that would be freaking awesome. She might be, but she hasn't done much acting probably since like the seventies or eighties. I guess her name's I think Kitty Wynn is the actress. Is that her name? She was in this one with a uh, Pacino called uh something in the park like uh it's all about heroin junkies it was about heron mikey heron oh i know that movie you're talking oh, about it's an older one like needle, from the needle seven, park yeah something, needle uh, park yeah something like that but uh that one was uh you know won a bunch of awards and everything like that i i, I gotta tell you guys every time i i, I you know it, it just kind of hit me I know, I know I'm a little slow, but she was magnificent in that. She stood behind that family, man. Shit, oh. if I would have seen that when, shit. When the, you hear like the, the cow noises, yeah. she's trying to put the headphones on. Yeah. Her death in part two always freaked me out because I, she gets, they get into the car accident. She gets out and the, the psychiatrist is like, uh, you know, yelling at her, like, help me get out of the car because she's stuck. And then she's like, say the demon's name. And she says, Pazuzu. And then she drops like a, a lantern or yeah. something that yeah, catches it was on fire. Like that. Yeah. But like the look in her eyes, like she looked freaky, man. Well, let me tell you oh. something. The one part that a lot of people oversee and 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 just don't 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 they they you know a lot of like a lot of times a lot of movies I study the films. You know, I don't just watch them. I'm like I watch every little detail, what everything. Means. Oh yeah, me too. But but let me tell you something. When she when she told them about uh the, the help on her stomach obviously oh, yeah. she was going in there and checking on her man i ain't going anywhere near some dude that's spitting out something like that and his head's turning around i don't give a shit uh-huh. what you guys say i don't care if it's either you well, or sammy she was like I ain't going uh, in there. she was like the living nanny and chris yeah. chris's assistant yeah mm. yeah that's I'm, I'm hoping for the best but you you, you think it's gonna be bad mike the only reason it's gonna it could be bad is because david gordon green is directing and i'm not a huge fan of these new halloween films so bit true we'll see true but to his credit you know he directed he didn't write those new uh halloween films mm-hmm. and i think the problem with those there's a lot of comedy it's because danny mcbride was writing those and he's a comedic actor so no he didn't write the last one. Oh, he didn't no okay but yeah we'll we'll see how they turn out there's, there's supposed to be three of them. Oh, there's supposed to be three of them? Three of them? Three new Exorcist films. <sighs> yeah. Mm. 
That's a lot. <laughs> Good luck to you, Mr. Green. Go ahead, Sam. Well, at the uh, rectory, an equally threatening phone call was made to the priests uh, with the voice on the other end telling them to stay the goddamn hell out of my house. <laughs> the priests were confused because the voice sounded exactly like Carl Glatzel Sr., but slightly off. Uh, Alan Glatzel also answered the phone one day, and the voice told them that he would be stabbed through David. The priests, uh, I'm sorry, the Warrens also claimed that other people in Brookfield that had nothing to do with the case reported receiving similar vulgar phone calls. Uh, but the real renewal of possession occurred uh, when David began hearing the cry of a young girl calling out in the distance. Help me, David. Then, as he slept, a strange, uh, strained voice spoke through him and said, We will any dies at work tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, the following day, Arnie, who was enjoying his new job as a tree surgeon, was working up near the top of an elm tree. They call that the brain. Uh, when uh, he was rigging... <laughs> When, he, when his rigging harness suddenly let go, uh, in seconds he dropped about 70 feet through the branches until his pulley gear checked the fall. <laughs> you going to be okay? <laughs> so Ar Arnie's foreman then told him that he was uh, lucky to be alive. That's a, that's a lot, like seven stories up? Yeah, he, yeah. The no less dangerous was the situation that occurred in downtown Bethel. David had been confined to the house for over a month, and they felt that it was now safe to take him out for a ride when they went shopping. They were sitting at a stoplight in the center of town one day. Debbie was driving. Judy and David were also in the front seat, with Alan, Jason, and Arnie in the back seat. Suddenly, David got fidgety and had a faraway look in his eyes. The next thing they knew, David grabbed the steering wheel and stopped on the gas pedal. In seconds, the car was careening at full speed down Main Street. Arnie had to immediately grab the steering wheel, and Debbie slammed on the brakes, hardly able to overcome David's strength because his foot was smashing her right foot on the accelerator while she was trying to brake with her left foot. Unfortunately, they stopped only a few moments before they were about to hit a group of people at an intersection. After it happened, the thing uh, and David laughed in the deep man's voice, confirming to the family that the nightmare wasn't over. <laughs> you, you know what? You know what? That, you know what that? You know what the, Sammy just read? You know what that reminded me of, Mike? Uh, a, mo I, <laughs> a movie that I think was so uh, underrated and and just so ahead of its time, The Car. When, oh. when when they couldn't figure out who it was, where it was, where it came from, and it was the de it was the devil himself. That was magnificent thinking, right. man. I I just love movies that are so far off the wall. I told you guys, man, they're not coming out with shit. Oh, the remake, a remake, a remake, or, or you know, just uh, you know, like the Marvel movies, and they're coming out a hundred a year. Give me something, right. give me something out of the air, man. And that movie was out of the air. And let me tell you something. I don't know if you guys watched that movie lately, but that was a violent ass movie, man. Speaking that was a the, violent ass movie. Speaking of Marvel, I tried to watch uh, Wakanda Forever. I got through like an hour. Wasn't into it. It was bad. Yeah. Was it? Was it bad? Just a bunch of crap. Was yeah. the Was the Black it Panther sucked. good? There is. Uh, I mean, I don't see the end. I didn't see the ending. Like I said, I only watched an hour. But the guy, you know, no, the Black Panther died. So it's his sister that is the new Black Panther. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Shuri. Uh, I said. I said. I even watched either one of them. It was Pass. just boring. It just kept dragging and dragging. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Fuck mm. the Black Panther. <laughs> 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 well that sunday night outbreaks of phenomenon returned humming vibrations were heard in the house square flashing lights appeared on the walls of darkened rooms 
The beast's head was superimposed over the faces of family members in framed pictures. An empty, unconnected washing machine unaccountably flooded the basement, and spirit forms appeared, many of them wearing shrouds. By Monday, August 25th, David was back under full possession, and the first statement the entity made after taking over David was directed, uh, directed at Arnie, telling him, I'm going to kill you, and the next time, I won't fail. The entity told them that it was enraged about the high mass and told them off in angry-sounding, oddly mystical languages that none of them could understand. Uh, in response to prayers said in his presence, the possessing entity in David uh, would make the sign of the cross backward and scream, Our Father, who art in hell, this soul belongs to Satan! Attacks on David's body regained their severity, and as David was stabbed, shot, and clubbed, one day the beast made David attempt to do sit-ups for almost an hour. To add insult to injury, Ju uh, Judy screamed out, he can't do sit-ups. He's too <laughs> fat. <laughs> After that, the beast left his <laughs> left his body, and David threw up all over himself. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. But Sammy, why I've said this on so many of our podcasts? Why are demons so angry? They gotta hit you right where why it hurts. Why are they so angry? I mean, it, you know, it's either one Poor thing or another. Fat kid. Hey, yeah, he's too fat. You, you can't know, do I, it. I ain't gonna lie. I ain't gonna lie. Some of the demons that we've talked about, they got fantastic sense of humor. But there's some angry ass motherfuckers, man. <laughs> A lot of dick demons. I don't know. <laughs> now, when the entity wasn't possessing David's body for hours at a time it used him to furiously attack the other members of the family under possession david would wait with knives and fireplace pokers for an opportune moment to strike and then wild surreal scenes of violence would then unfold in the house leaving them feeling like someone's life was always in jeopardy at one point arnie grabbed david's wrist just in time to prevent a murder after david had been about to stab alan in the stomach with a steak knife um, enraged the entity screamed that it was going to possess arnie for that and indeed, it did possess Arnie. Um, Debbie explained that the night after the knife incident, Arnie was sitting with her and her parents at the kitchen table when suddenly, out of nowhere, he started to go through these ugly convulsions like David used to get when he first came under possession. When the shaking was over, Arnie's face was distorted looking and his features were drawn back bony-like and into an animal sneer. His eyes were glassy and wild, and then a growling sound came out of him. Uh, this possession of Arnie lasted less than a minute, however. It was only the first of six possession episodes. The last of the two would be before and during the murder. Now, one particularly strange incident called uh, uh, concerned what Debbie called the claw. During the night, Debbie would often feel a cold hand touch her, and in the morning, she'd have scratches on, uh, on her that weren't there when she went to bed. One night in August, she felt movement by her arm, and when she reached down, she touched something freezing cold and scaly. When she opened her eyes to look, it was gone. But the next night, the same thing happened. This time, a light was on, and she saw it. There was a big, scaly green claw sticking up through the floor. It had three claw-like fingers with a nail at the end of each one. And before she could do anything, the lizard claw ran its nails down the side of her arm and scratched it in three wiggly lines. Then the claw retracted back down into the floor. <laughs> so this happened several times after, with Arnie also seeing the claw and receiving odd scratches on his chest. David said that the claw belonged to helper number 40, who was an eight-foot-tall ghoul that was supposed to guard the basement. Maybe it was just someone's nasty toenails. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> yeah, because you, you should see my toenails, dude. No! 
They look like wood. Dude, dude. <laughs> you, 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 you remember that series It? Do you remember that series It? It's live. Yeah. That's how my toenails look. They look like little claw guys. <laughs> yeah. New highly intensive phenomenon and deeper, <laughs> more intensified possession characterized this relapse phase. And though the beast spoke through David as before, it now exhibited an intelligence never before seen under all the vulgarity. So Judy would repeatedly tell the beast that the priests were going to exercise him, and then he would be forced to obey the commands of God, to which the beast would respond, Never! I will never obey the commands of God. I will never be exercised. It is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Sounds like Slayer lyrics. Yeah, this is a quote from uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost, by the way. You guys ever uh, read anything about Paradise Lost? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like a journey through hell. I know um, that Robin Williams movie was kind of based on it, right? Yeah, a couple films. What Dreams May Come? Yeah, a couple films. Well, well, really, that was based on a Richard Matheson novel, but that was also kind of based on Paradise Lost. You know know what? You dudes might think this is a little weird, but uh, I've always thought about, you know, what hell would be like and checking it out. And I'm totally serious. No, no, no. I am, to- I am totally, totally serious. I, I, you know, I mean, I know it's impossible. Christmas carols on a loop for eternity. <laughs> I just you, you, you said that like most people say, I'll check out that bar or something. Like, I'll fucking, I'll check out hell, bro. <laughs> no, I'm totally serious. I, I would, I would dig to check out some of that stuff. Awesome. Well, this resurgence of possession and phenomena made it obvious that genuine pos- exorcism was needed. And a week after the high mass, Father Virgilac and the Warrens conferred again. Father Virgilac was already in the process of making a recommendation of action to the bishop and consulting with the other priests in Brookfield. There was an overwhelming need for a major exorcism, and Father Virgilac's recommendation was that the ritual Romanum be said over David as soon as possible, but this would only happen if the case fulfilled the criteria laid down by the church. So uh, some of the criteria was, has the individual divulged hidden or future knowledge has the individual spoken in unorthodox tongues or languages previously unknown to him? Has the individual demonstrated preternatural powers or caused actions distinctly beyond the bounds of human ability? Has a possessive entity identified itself uh, by name or else given some indisputable sign of diabolical presence? In this case, an overwhelming yes was the answer to every question. The Warrens got many of the predictions on tape, and in terms of languages, they heard David talk in three different voices other than his own. Uh, One time talking backward, by the way. Um, In addition to speaking English in the extraordinary high and low vocabulary, it also spoke a magic tongue, new Latin, and even quoted verse. I love it. I love that stuff. Right? He was expecting like every part of the seriously, the man, that, awesome possession things. So <laughs> fucking creepy with 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 the uh, with recordings and you know the greatest obviously was Jesus and they were talking backwards and you know blah 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 blah. That was magnificent. Awesome. Now David's ability to see through walls demonstrated preternatural powers while bouncing and bloating uh, while the bouncing and bloating of his body indicated actions beyond human ability on the physical side as well. As for distinguishing, uh, as for a distinguishing sign, the entity called itself Satan, but it had yet truly divulged its name. Um, out of pride, however, it had branded its likeness on David's leg in a vivid red patch. Remember that from last week? Uh, the case fulfilled all four points established by the church, although only one point had to be met to justify the need for a major exorcism. Now, all the priests involved in the case were subjected to visitations from entities in black, and Father Virgilac's desk lamp inexplicably exploded, showering with bits of glass. I like this demon already, right? <laughs> <laughs> I told you to get such humor. 
He's awesome, except for the part where he threw the puppy under the car. That is not cool. <laughs> that was fucked up, but every part of this demon I like, every except for that. <laughs> So uh, when the, when the decision to formally exercise David at the school chapel at St. Joseph's was made, everyone felt they were on the right path again. After the priest and bishop kept using the word deliverance, the Warrens were astounded to learn that the bishop had refused permission for the ritual Romanum. They couldn't do a proper exorcism. Now, uh, therefore, the true exorcism would be attempted, but using a litur uh, different liturgy or rite to accomplish the task. To prepare for this procedure, the priest dedicated low masses during the week for the successful release of David. They engaged in three days of prayer and fasting, and they asked their congregations to say additional prayers for an unnamed special intention. The latter point developed into a huge prayer network up and down the East Coast by the weekend of August 13th. Was oh. it Friday? <laughs> that would be pretty cool. I don't, I don't think so. What was it? Uh, August 13th? No, I don't think it was. Now, uh, on uh, Tuesday, September 2nd, a classic exorcism took place in Brookfield Center. Uh, the site of the exorcism was the altar of St. Joseph's School Chapel. Uh, when Ed and Lorraine Warren arrived at the Glatzel home around 1.30 to take the family to the church, David was fully under possession and holding his grandmother at knife point. This poor woman was visiting from out of state and she knew nothing about the possession up to this point. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Like, she just showed yeah. up in the morning and she's like, hey, what's going on? What's going on? Get the fuck out of the house, old woman. Where's my blade? You'll feel the wrath. That's right. My knife is thirsty for blood. You will feed it. You will feed my blade, woman. <laughs> and she comes in with like a bunch of cookies or a cake, and he, he smacks it. He smacks it out of her hand. <laughs> He's like, "Hey, Grandma, what's that cake smell like? Go ahead, smell it. Go ahead, smell it." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so oh. The, the possessing entity was speaking through David and went into an abusive rampage when it saw the Warrens, threatening Ed and showering Lorraine with vulgarities. When Carl Sr. saw that David was distracted, he grabbed David's wrist and wrestled the knife from him, after which David kept growling, biting, spitting, and attacking everyone. To get David to the church, they had to tackle, subdue, and tie him to a chair with sheets. During all the shouting, David's lips never moved, though, his eyes never blinked, and his muscles never flexed, but he kept up with the threats of violence and accusations. What? That's right. Yeah, remember, this kid is like 5'5", five, five, like 200 pounds, too. He's a big kid. Dude. You saw some pictures of him earlier. That is <laughs> fucked up, man. Exactly. Plus the shirt he was wearing. <laughs> so at 2 p.m., David was uh, forcibly ushered into the chapel by Carl Sr. and Ed Warren, and the strength he showed trying to escape them was incredible. David was brought to a pew in the front row where the four priests stood waiting, dressed in black day clothes, over which they wore a white surplus and a purple stole. Uh, present for this exorcism were Carl, Judy, Alan, and Debbie Gladsell and Arnie. Carl Jr. refused to be in attendance, and Debbie's son Jason stayed at home with the Gladsell grandmother, who was now shell-shocked and terrified. Uh, the Warrens were there in a professional capacity as well, with the rain test with discerning the presence of uh, nature of the entities, and Ed to lend his expertise as a demonologist. He would protect the priest, guide the proceedings, and make sure the exorcism rite was completed no matter what happened. Yeah, we're talking about the Warrens, so professionalism, you know. Yeah, 
Yeah, you know, le- legit seriousness. Right. Anybody who's just declares themselves a demonologist, right. like <laughs> yeah. uh, the, Van- the Vatican appointed me as an exorcist. <laughs> now you'll notice on my wall here, I got a uh, you know awarded to Ed Warren, oh. given by Ed Warren. <laughs> da- David's no longer in the stage of oppression; he is fully possessed. <laughs> Now, the planned ritual consisted of first anointing all the individuals with holy oils for protection, then the reading of prayers and psalms, the discernment of entities, the casting out of those entities by the exorcist, and last, a final blessing of thanksgiving for the release of a mortal soul from bondage to the eternal enemy. Uh, Theoretically, the rite was supposed to be a peaceful one. So the anointing with oils proceeded without incident. I just imagine everybody dripping with oils, like they're covered in Vaseline. <laughs> like, like, I can't fucking see. <laughs> but during the reading of the preliminary prayers, the possessing entity in David called Jesus and Mary filthy names. Uh, by the end of the introductory prayer, David... Boo-boo head. Yeah, David... <laughs> David broke loose from Ed's grasp and tried to attack the priests physically. David was caught, restrained, and brought back to the pew, snorting, growling, and struggling. Yeah, Wait, is, that the, is that the best you could come up with? <laughs> Filthy names. <laughs> Filthy. You're just a cock our head. Yeah. <laughs> You wait till I get up to my shenanigans. (laughs) What's a (laughs) cock? You fucking shithead. So as the reading of the prayers continued, the beast screamed at Father Virgilac. Shut up, you pious fool. You bunch of motherfuckers. You foul swine. Father Sheehan demanded silence, and the beast told him. Don't you dare command me, you ape, you swine, you fucking slob. This is for you. (laughs) (laughs) We just had to get one of those in there somewhere in these episodes. (laughs) That would be me as a demon. (laughs) (laughs) That was me as a demon. Don't ask why I had that. You had a demon in you. Let me tell you. (laughs) No, I downloaded it. So uh, suddenly, Father Sheehan jumped, the result of a deep slash on his leg from which blood ran from. Father Virgilac continued reading the prayers above the shouts and the catcalls of the possessing entity. Failing at a verbal disruption, David got loose again and was pinned down at the foot of the altar. After nearly an hour, he still exhibited endless strength and resistance to the exorcism. Ed, Arnie, and Alan held David at the foot of the altar as Father Virgilac then began reading the commands of exorcism. But the entity and David turned wild, spitting profusely all over Father Virgilac, Father Sheehan, and Ed Warren. So it bit, cursed, shrieked, and howled blasphemies and profanities that echoed unseasonally around the church. Father Virgilac returned once again and again to the commands of exorcism. The entity in opposition responded with a litany of sins and it accused the others of committing while accusing the priests of engaging in every kind of sexual perversity imaginable, probably some pedo shit in there. Uh, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. The entity, uh, the entity named members of the priests' families and threatened to attack them in retaliation. Despite the abuse, the exorcism commands continued. That's one of the things they say about exorcists: is they have to be able to, like, you know, withstand people. You know, the devil being like. We saw you jerking off last week. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the crazy shit where it, it'll you know it'll pull something out of the left field that like okay how did you know that yeah, yeah. that's what they said there was a bunch of in this case like mm. just knowing things that they could. What you have say known. about my mama? Yeah, say what? Say what? What? What again? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> now, Father Virgil had commanded Satan to be gone and to seize his malice and withdraw from the elect of God. And an awful groan issued from David's body as pages of hymn books were heard rustling in the back of the church. They then heard footsteps in the opening and closing of a door at the rear of the chapel. This is where Lorraine Lauren, Warren came in. She sensed that all of the lesser spirits had been expelled from David. Lorraine then discerned that only four spirits still remained in David, the strongest ones who had orchestrated the entire thing, but that one of them was the power. So she said that gluttony was present, lust was present, a high entity using the name Gay Trois was present. I think so. I just say that. <laughs> but deep off, deep off in the distance stood the final one, the power. Uh, the first three were demonic, but the last one was the devil. Screaming and yelling erupted from De uh, David the moment Lorraine said devil. The devil then spoke through David, telling them that they could never expel him and that David's soul was his to take. And though in the first hour of the exorcism was the battle, uh, the second was a war. Everyone was covered with spit and slobber, particularly the priests. They were kicked, punched, and bitten. Everyone was forced to listen to accusations and were repulsed and depraved uh, uh, by depraved blasphemies against the Christ, Mary, and the church. So this whole thing, they're just insulting the whole time, you know? Mm. In the middle of the screaming, Father Sheehan whispered to Lorraine that a large folding knife appeared to be in David's shirt pocket. Although Lorraine barely heard the priest, the very next statement from the beast was, The knife is mine, and I know what to do with it. What had obviously uh, been a physical object in the boy's pocket then disappeared when Ed Warren reached for it. His efforts were met with a raucous laughter, and what possessed David was overwhelming in power and strength. He used everything it had to stop the exorcism, including deception. You're telling me they brought this kid into a church to give him an exorcism, and they didn't know he had a fucking knife in his pocket of his shirt? I think that's what they're saying, is like it would appear and disappear, kind of like an app port. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. Remember we talked about app ports before? Yes. <laughs> they would disappear and disappear. Yes. This is so silly. <laughs> That'd be cool if it was a blood-filled knife. <laughs> like a Swiss army knife. <laughs> now, David began speaking softly in his own voice, apparently talking to himself. He was saying that it hurt so bad that he just wanted out of there, and he begged them to stop hurting him and take him out of the church. The pleading was uh, was, was sufficiently deceptive enough to prompt Father Virgilac to bend down and speak to David, whereupon David suddenly grabbed his stole and began strangling him. Mistake. So two hours into the exorcism, the entity began cursing, uh, causing David's body to bloat, bounce and choke nearly to death. David's face had turned blue, his eyes and tongue protruded grossly, but Father Virgilac persisted in the commands of expulsion. Long tortured animal wail sounds sounded from uh, David's body at the very uh, same time he was gagging. David's eyes bulged and his tongue was so swollen that he couldn't breathe. For the clergy, clergy, this was a critical point, and they had to decide whether to proceed with the exorcism or risk David's dying in the process. Not willing to risk death, Father Virgilac stopped the exorcism at 4 p.m. He made the sign of the cross over David and declared, Dominus Vobiscum, meaning the Lord be with you, and the furry subsided. For the time being, David Glatz will remain possessed and further exorcism would be called for. So the exorcism was not a total bust, for now the legion of lesser possessing entities were gone from David, although the four main entities remained. Debbie's journal for that night of uh, September 2nd indicates that at 9.45, David went into a trance state and started uh, fighting violently and spitting on them. He kicked over two bottles of holy water and hit David, uh, Debbie in the jaw with a book when she wasn't paying attention. <laughs> 
They then found uh, David on his stomach in the living room, bobbing up and down. After that, David was knocked over backward from a kick to the stomach. It's weird to picture some of these things bobbing up and down. Like, like dribbling? <laughs> I think he was, like, laying flat from what I would, like, picture in my mind. Like, his head was, he was just, like, levitating a bunch. Oh, my God. Lots of uh, verbose claims in the yeah. some of this stuff. <laughs> it sounds so good to be true, you know. Yeah. Too good to be true. Yeah, very story-like. Very fantastical. Well, it is the but Warrens. This is what they say their story is. So, uh, well, maybe not all the Glatzels. We'll get to that in a little bit. But although David was uh, still possessed, the frequency and duration of each possession episode, as well as the number of physical attacks, were efficiently reduced by half. This, at least, was a positive sign. On the negative side, the 40-odd entities that had formerly participated in the seizure had not left entirely. The effect of the exorcism was only to remove them from David's body, but he reported that they still hung around the house taunting him. Ed Warren explained that after the second exorcism attempt, the scope of the problem extended beyond possession as a backlash of intimidating phenomenon was directed at the investigators and clergy. One of the priests said that he woke up to find his bed and pillow fully soaked in blood. The priest said that the blood squished when he turned his head. That's cool. I like that. <laughs> so the beast reportedly confronted the other priests in black form, and the clergy suffered from intense pounding headaches. One priest lost his voice, and another got so stressed out that he was put on medication. I think the priest that lost his voice got a lot better than the guy who woke up in blood. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Jeez. Now, the, now, is this supposed to be Arnie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is in, in real life. So where is David? Is David still alive? Yeah, but he's like real low key. Like he won't give any interviews. There's like yeah. no pictures of him that I could find anywhere. It was weird. Okay. Except for, you know, the ones that are in the book of him, like when he was like, tw you know, 11, 12 mm -hmm. years old, basically. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, the real focus of the retaliation was directed at Arnie Johnson, who was constantly threatened by name as being the next one to be possessed. Accordingly, at mass that Sunday, um, Arnie was sitting with Debbie, Jason, uh, with Debbie, Jason, and the Gladsells when he saw a being that was all black standing on the altar with the priest while he was performing the ceremony. It was uh, mimicking the priest's actions behind him, probably throwing in at least you know like one jerk off hand motion or like the mi miming of a sloppy dick sucks or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the next thing that Arnie knew, he was standing outside the church with Debbie, who was asking why he did it. So he didn't know what, what she was talking about, so Debbie filled him in. She said that he was uh, just sitting there in the pew, and right when the host was raised up in the air, Arnie started cursing, or better, something was cursing through him, because his jaw was open wide, but his mouth didn't move, and he started saying things to the effect of, like, Son of a bitch bastard, I want out of here! Get me <laughs> out of this goddamn fucking church! <laughs> it's like, hey, why don't you take a walk, buddy? Yeah. <laughs> Hey, I got my family here. <laughs> I told you, man. These dudes are angry. <laughs> Damn. Now, people turned around, but Arnie didn't uh, seem to be in a trance, uh, uh, and he didn't seem to notice what he was doing, so Debbie dragged him out of the service. They figured that the beast wanted to make a fool out of him in front of the community, you know, for what he was about to do to Arnie. So the incident was preceded by an ominous prediction that came, uh, that came through David earlier in the week when the beast declared... I have come for a soul, and I will take what's mine. I will possess Arnie and kill with a knife. The prediction didn't stop there. The entity stated that Arnie would be caught for the crime, and then it rattled off a series of names, which later turned out to be the lawyers and court officials in the legal case. Finally, it declared that Arnie would be found guilty without a trial and be shut away for life in prison. 
So uh, the day for the next exorcism was deliberately set for Monday, September 8th, 1980, chosen because it is apparently the birthday of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and many miraculous uh, cures have occurred on that day, including sudden exorcisms. It's also a day when possession does not occur anywhere in the world. Here's my question. How do they know that's Mary's birthday? Yeah. Yeah, but again, again, like I was, like I was telling you guys, look at this, man. There's a guy's head right there on the on the right, and a little baby over there, and a snake. And they're all they're all babies, dude. Is it some, sometimes these versions of Catholic stuff, man. Yeah, so I was talking about a little painting. Yeah, there's cherubs. a painting going on with the <laughs> Virgin Mary and cherubs. What's a cherub? Little baby angel. Oh, fat babies like uh, Valentine's, <laughs> <Fat> you know. Babies. <laughs> <laughs> Now, no trouble was expected, so the site of the exorcism was changed from the school chapel to the convent of St. Joseph's, a colonial building directly across from the Congregational Church, the afternoon of September 8th, while the other children of Brookfield were beginning a new school year, David was brought to the convent house by his mother, his sister, and Alan, waiting at the convent where the Warrens and the four priests. Once everyone was settled, the doors were locked and the drapes were drawn, David was seated into a large armchair. The, the objective was to read the rite of exorcism to David from beginning to end without resistance or interference. The procedure was supposed to take an hour. In the end, it took two. As anticipated, the possession was not inflicted on David that day. He was fatigued but cooperative. The priest stood in a semicircle in front of him and began reading the prescribed introductory prayers. However, David told them immediately that the spirits were not present. They were at the house causing havoc. The proceedings were stopped, and Ed Warren was dispatched to transfer the entities out of the Glatzel home. So Ed said that when he got to the house, he found the rocking chair going back and forth at full speed. The grandmother was sitting wide-eyed like she'd experienced something. And in the master bedroom, Carl and Judy's bed was levitating about six inches off the floor before it shook violently and slammed back onto the floor. To transfer the entities out of the house, Ed said that it was as simple as placing a blessed object from the convent inside the Glatzel home a small statue of St. Joseph on the mantle. What do you guys think you would do if someone said, we need to transfer those demons back to the church? Uh, 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 get a fucking U-Haul? I don't know. What yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm a man. <laughs> U-Haul. It's like, I keep this statue in my trunk. I got one for you. Yeah. Save me with the chubby babies, Peter. <laughs> yeah, the cherubs. 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 Don't tell Dominic that. <laughs> Now, when Ed Warren returned to the church, David reported that the spirits were all now in the convent. Uh, strange thumps and, and movements of furniture, both in and above the day room, confirmed this. Though uh, the, These unexpected diversions took a full hour to resolve, but finally at 3 p.m., the exorcism began in earnest. It was the same lengthy reading attempted in the chapel on September 2nd, but this scene in the convent was drastically different than the previous one. This time, there was no interference. The prayers and psalms were recited without interruption. There was no spitting, biting, cursing, or screaming, and everyone waited for an interruption, but none arose. At 4 p.m., the final prayer of thanksgiving and beseechment was read aloud, and Father Virgilac rendered a small formal blessing on David, That was, and that was that. It was over. They would then have to wait until after midnight to find out if David was free of entities possessing him. Oh, goddamn. <laughs> okay, that got me. Son of a bitch. <laughs> now, David spent the evening free of pain, and at 10.30, Lorraine returned to the house, accompanied by Paul Bartz, 
one of the Warrens' research assistants, and the man strongly believed to be the ghost boy in that famous Amityville photo that shows a figure with glowing white eyes. That's what just freaked Sal out. <laughs> Dude, stop. <laughs> so Ed wasn't present that night, for reasons I'll explain in a minute, but Paul's job was to observe David and call Ed immediately should possession occur. I thought the picture of the boy was supposed to be one of the... Uh, uh, what was the Italian family that was murdered? Oh, the Lutz family? Not the Lutz. Oh, not the Lutz. Um, the DeFeos. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. It was supposed to be one of the DeFeo boys. That's what they said it was, but in reality, it, like, it's pretty much proof. Like, um, Kenny Burdell, like, Skeptical Inquirer puts it all together. Like, you know, like, what could have made his eyes do that? Because he had, Paul Barnes had glasses. He was also photographed in the same night, like, wearing the same shirt that, like, the it looks like the ghost oh, boy's wearing. Okay. Huh. <laughs> yeah. So it's probably Paul Bart's in that. I've, that's what I've surmised, kind of. Hmm. Now, all was fine until around uh, 11.45. That's when David started pacing the living room. And when spoken to, he was gruff and nasty. He's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fucking fine. (laughs) (laughs) I like doing that. So at uh, 12.25, a paper airplane (laughs) sailed across the room and hit Father Sheehan in the chest. When he, uh, he looked at David, he was met with a burning stare. Then at 12.30, David came under possession. His whole body began to vibrate and his eyes rolled up into his head. The beast told the priest to leave and get out, that David was his and they couldn't have him. Father Virgilac, uh, Lorraine Warren, and Judy Glatzel were threatened with death for going uh, through with the exorcism, and a barrage of hostile accusations and vulgarities followed again. The women were called sluts, whores, tramps, prostitutes, and the men were met with insulting accusations of sexual misconduct. And the priests were called queers. <laughs> Dude, I feel guilty just you reading that. <laughs> right? Uh, well, I guess I'm canceled then, right? Yeah, I guess right. I'm canceled. I can't say any fucking thing anymore. <laughs> hey, Father, you want to hear a joke? Yeah. What's the difference between pimples and a Catholic priest? Pimples don't come in your face before you're 10 years old. Oh, no. <laughs> How do you get a nun pregnant? You dress her up like an altar boy. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck all of you. <laughs> Next week, I'll be like Caroline's at New York City. Edit. 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 It's very rare I can say it. Edit. So accordingly, Paul Bartz called Ed Warren. Uh, by the time Paul Bartz returned to the living room a minute later, David was wild. He was like, Ed, this kid is, has some fire material about priests. Get over here. He's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Arnie and Carl Sr. were doing all that they could to hold him back as he struggled to get at the priests, particularly Father Vigilac. Um, It took four men to hold David down as Father Virgilac began another exorcism attempt. Everything that the priests said were then met with crude rebuttals or insults, and any oils or holy water uh, that they threw on David were only spat back into their faces. So for the next 30 minutes, uh, the major interruption was a tirade of accusations and filthy name-calling, first directed at Father (laughs) Virgilac, then at Father Sheehan. The entity then referred to the priest's families and alluded to its interference in their lives. By 2 a.m., Father Virgilac was at the point in the ritual of rebuking the entity and commanding it to leave. This was brought on by a new uh, violent wave of uh, resistance. Infused with a bolt of strength, David suddenly broke free and started to run berserk. It took more time to bring him under control, and in response to the commands of the exorcism, being read line by line, there was constant verbal resistance. 
When shouting and physical struggle didn't work, effusions of spit and phlegm poured from his mouth. <laughs> then David's uh, whole body started to vibrate up and down, followed by a choking seizure. David then turned blue and stopped breathing as his chest swelled. Father Virgil finally got it to say its name, and it told them, My name is Legion. We are many. Does this kid ever change his shirt? <laughs> Have He's, you been noticing it's, it's the same shirt? It's the same shirt. <laughs> this guy's been wearing a Burt Ernie shirt for the last uh, three, three or four episodes here. You know what I think they did for Gerard Brittle's book? <laughs> those, were, those were where those pictures are from. I bet they just did a photo op, like, all in one day, you know? <laughs> this was David in August. This is David in September. <laughs> or else, he, yeah, just maybe he was like a cartoon character. He just wore the same shirt every Dude. day. <laughs> now, another crucial part of the exorcism was taking place about 25 miles away in Ed Warren's study. There alone, between 2 and 3 a.m., Ed received a visitation of a very high and profound order. He was confronted by the origin of all the trouble. That night, Ed saw the devil that possessed David. The entity didn't uh, visit by chance. It had been summoned there by Ed Warren deliberately for the purpose of binding the beast. Now, binding is an essential part of Roman exorcism in which the entity is not only expelled from the body, but is commanded or bound by the law of God not to seize a particular human being again. A diabolical entity that is not bound by the exorcist is capable of possessing again and again. Therefore, binding is the killing blow. This is like, you know, the ritual Romanum and binding is like what you see in every possession movie, mm. basically. So except that no binding procedure was going to take place in Brookfield, it couldn't and hadn't been authorized because of church politics and bureaucratic bullshit. Ed's intention was, therefore, to summon the lead entity to him in the name of God and bind it to a mystical law that it had to obey. Thou shalt not possess another creature of God as thy own. Now, if Ed could uh, bind the lead entity, as he said he'd done before in other cases, then the priest could exercise the remaining spirits in David. This would then affect a full exorcism and permanently free David, but what he didn't count on was the complexity of the spirit that arrived. Having commanded the entity to appear using the steps outlined in an arcane religious manual, Ed felt the room grow exceptionally cold. Since the beast needed heat to manifest itself, Ed knew it was coming. The stench of putrid flesh filled the air. Then Ed heard constant screeching, and as a death-like stillness permeated the room, a sense of immense danger and jeopardy filled Ed. Then suddenly the thing, the thing was there. What came through was an entity so horrendous, so radically different, so consummately powerful that it cannot be accurately described. What confronted Ed Warren from 20 feet away was not even remotely human. It was a pulsing tar black mass, seven feet tall. Its body was glossy and throbbing. Its head was twice the size of a man's and it too was pulsating in black. It had many faces and there were features that might be classified as eyes, nose, and a mouth, but nothing stayed in one place. Every few seconds, the face changed, and with each change came an incredible new grotesquerie. So some of them were mutilated, some of them were abominations with hairy boils on the skin, swollen eyes, and torn mouths. Others were unworldly monsters with jagged horns protruding from the cheekbones, the forehead, or the temples. Others looked distinctly animalistic with large red reptilian eyes the size of baseballs and the snout of a lizard. What Ed saw was the full show of faces that David vividly described all summer, but what he didn't know, because to him each lineage was projected with a separate entity, was that all 43 of them were really one entity, and every face had a meaning. Every struggle David and his family experienced came through in these faces. It was uh, like hate, rage, violence, profanity, gluttony, deception, malice, pride, betrayal, blasphemy, and death. Sounds like a party. 
Yeah, fuck yeah. Get a sixer of death. (laughs) (laughs) So each face was shocking, but as a whole, the entity was overwhelming. It could not be dealt with, and binding was impossible. If Ed had started, he says it would have killed him, so he stepped back from the thing, which was growing larger as he watched, and released it from the command by which he'd summoned it. The entity lingered a few moments, then was gone. Back in Brookfield, the exorcism continued with David screaming out for Satan to take his soul and his life. David also pled out loud to make the exorcism stop and that they were killing him. The beast screamed that he was going to kill David and brought him to the brink of death multiple times as if blackmailing the priest to stop. At one point, David fell to the floor, cold and still, his pulse and heartbeat were zero, and his skin turned white. After a minute of this, those in the room started to panic, thinking that David might have had a heart attack. At this uniquely wrong point in time, Arnie Johnson reaffirmed his tragic mistake he had made before. All night long, he'd been holding David's arms and legs, fighting the physical strength of the beast, but now David lay limp, white, and apparently dying. Desperate to save uh, David's life, Arnie declared, Let David live. Take me on. Come into me. Deep coarse laughter promptly erupted from David's inner body, and the beast called them suckers and fools. Damn. Not only are they angry, but they're mean. You know, we were talking about, like, uh, uses funny words, maybe like, you know, suckers or fools. You know what I thought was a funny, it would be a funny one? You're all a bunch of chumps. (laughs) (laughs) Remember chump? (laughs) We might have to bring back calling people chumps. Yeah. It's a classic. classic. But wait a minute, Sammy. Wait a minute. A, A couple of pages ago, did I hear that right? You, they said that uh, the the ministry didn't allow them to bind them. Yeah, they and wouldn't let them. They wouldn't let them bind them. So, the, so, so that's what with the, the warrants. That makes no fucking sense at all. Yeah, they gotta bind that thing, Mikey. Mikey, Mikey. If I send, if if you come to me and say, Sal, I give you, can I permission to do this? Okay, Mike. And if I don't give you full permission, what good is it? Who yeah, the they were kind of like pussyfooting around it here. What the fuck was it? I mean, what 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 are what is this? What are these Catholics thinking? I don't. What care. do I gotta do to convince you guys I'm real? He's come on, a, guys. Like, <laughs> I mean, come on. he's making things levitate. Like we said, he fulfilled all the criteria that they set out. Dude, I mean, they okayed it. And then they won't go as far as to okaying the blast. I'm trying to bit do my possession here, guys. Dude, Mike, <laughs> I'm telling you. Speaking dude. of Satan, that's just totally unrelated. I'm going to see Satan, the band. Uh, right. <laughs> they're playing Reggie's. Okay. They're from 1979 from England. Nice. Uh, Sam, this is where you will input the song Trial by Fire. Right there. Okay. There so, uh, opening is Night Demon and Haunt. And it's in March at Ready to Forget. Seriously, dude, it's from 79? 1979. Satan. Fuck. From the old England. Dude, I'm going to have to look that up. Oh, great band. Great right around the corner metal. from here. Maybe we'll go to Waldo. Yeah. Speed metal. Not Brower House, Reggie's. Oh, Reggie's, Reggie's. All right. Yeah. Not but, around the corner from here. <laughs> but Brower House is a great venue, too. <laughs> Unrelated. I, I'm sorry, Mike, and when is that? March. Okay. March? Yeah. Right, well, the action caused uh, Lorraine to burst into tears, and she immediately sensed that Arnie had made a very grave mistake, that somehow Arnie would be made to pay for his challenge. He was ignorant of the responsibility he was taking on by making such an invitation, not knowing that instead of releasing David, the entity could possess them both, each in their own way. We see this in the movie. So Father Virgilek then had to stop, take Arnie aside, and sternly warn him never to do that again. 
By 5.30, the beast had indulged every possible ploy to disrupt and stop the exorcism, both physical and intellectual, but finally, there came a sign of weakening. All night long, the beast had fought to conquer and overwhelm, but it failed to break free and impose its will on all those present. It failed to carry out its threats to kill David, and most significantly of all, it failed to stop the exorcism. It had lost every battle and could do no more. David was drained of all his energy, and the reply switched to rationalizations instead of defiance, with the beast telling him that he didn't need David's fat little body to exist. <laughs> Poor little fat kid. Well, the time had come for a decision. That which possessed David Glatzel could either remain and be forced to surrender to the commands of the exorcist, or it could stop the possession and withdraw. The later, uh, the latter possibility posed the greatest danger, for if the entity withdrew without concession, uh, control would be lost. Possession might end, but the case would not. So Father Virgilac commanded the entity to be gone once and for all, and in response came a sudden gasping heave. David's body, restrained at both hands and feet, arched violently into a bow and then froze in that posture. His breathing stopped and moments passed, but again, it was only another tactic of interruption. Holy water was administered, and David's body crashed to the floor as an animal uh, noise came wailing uh, out of him from the burns it imposed by the holy water. It was a ruse for sympathy, but it didn't work. The entity that possessed David had fought ruthlessly to the end, and now it was weakened, depleted, and beaten. But until now, it had made no concessions. Slowly, though, David came back to his normal self in the early morning light. The grimace that distorted his face slackened and relaxed, and the unnatural strength in his arms and legs flooded away. Immediately, Father Virgilac addressed the entity, its menacing trace still evident in David's eyes. Father Virgilac crouched down beside David where he lay on the floor and said, Through the power of Christ, I command you, tell us, give us your name, and give the sign of your departure. This time, the answer was given, uh, the reply coming not in a bellow or shout, but in a voice that was distant, barely audible. It was only four words, but those four words said it all. I am the devil. So the time was 6.15 on September 9th, 1980. The exorcism was a success, and the major possession of David Glatzel was over. But what began on July 2nd, 1980, did not end on September 9th. The combined effect of all the religious procedures conducted during the summer, the blessings, the high mass, the concerted attempts at exorcism, functioned to stop the possession of David. The outrageous physical attacks on his body and the intense phenomena in the Glatzel home However, despite all that had been done, the spirit was not conclusively exercised, and there was one more act that had to be played out in this mystical drama, the death scene. Now, Ed Warren stated that although the various exorcism procedures ultimately stopped the entity from possessing David, the spirit itself was not exercised, at least not in the classical way that the word is understood. What was required all along was for, trained, for a trained exorcist to be assigned to the case by diocesan officials and given the authority to conduct a major exorcism, like we kept saying, the ritual Romanum. It was the only solution. Uh, what the what was possessing David had to be fully exercised and then bound by command not to possess him again and leave the family for good. Instead, diocesan officials, accountable only to themselves, stood aloof and kept the case confidential, taking care of it in their own way, which was to do too little too late. After September 2nd, when the need for a correct procedure was critical, the diocese still refused to grant authority either for a major exorcism or for an exorcist, an older man of pious uh, with the gift of discernment who was commanded the devil before to be brought in to perform the task. 
Because of the pride or politics or lack of interest, this enormous job was left in the hands of four young priests in the field, and they got hurt because of it. Had someone in the chancery got off their ass and observed the evil that was taking place in Brookfield, some positive move might have resulted. Instead, what took place was the uh, were two otherwise dedicated attempts at lesser exorcism. The result of these deliverance procedures was to stop the entity from possessing David, but the thing was not bound and expelled. Remaining free to possess again, disaster was not stopped, only deferred. We see this a lot where it takes multiple exorcisms, you know? They're yeah. saying that that Annalise McHale uh, um, woman, you know who the uh, exorcism of Emily Rose, and she had like 60 or something of them. It's not one and done. Oh. Now, further exorcism was required, but unbelievably, the Chancery closed the book on the case at that point. Father Virgilac was taken off the case in late September and sent to Rome, same with Father Cabrera. The local priests were instructed to return to their regular duties then. The policy uh, diocesan officials adopted was that if the entity wasn't possessing David, then their job was done, and they stuck with that position. So instead of cooperation came hostility from the church then. Ed Warren's statements were confirmed by the Glatzel family, with Judy summoning it up by saying that the church abandoned them. She also shared that a week after the last exorcism took place, a monk arrived at the house late at night in the limousine. He and his chauffeur came in and stayed an hour and a half. The monk was pompous and rude. Ed Warren called him an official church debunker. You know how all those <laughs> you know fuck? how all those monks have chauffeurs, right? Yeah, in limousines. Limos. You know, humanly possessions that is what strictly against fuck? monk culture. What's a debunker? <laughs> it's like uh, someone who's a naysayer. Yeah, someone who says against, you know, like you a UFO debunker is someone who's you know, like, you're crazy. You know what? You know what? I gotta stop right here, man. They, 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 if I was that David kid, because I was a little fat kid, because I'm a big fat guy now, but I'd be really, it wouldn't bother me that you made me bleed. It wouldn't bother me that you made me super strong and hate everybody. It, it wouldn't even bother me if, if, if grotesque things grew on me. But if you called me, if you said to me, I didn't need that fat little body anymore, that would bother me more than anything. You're, you're, stu you're stuck on that, huh? <laughs> oh, you poor little fat that, feelings. That, 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 my, yeah, that's right. My little fat feelings would hurt. I'd start, I had a little tear going on. <laughs> Now, that wasn't even the crazy part. So this monk declared that the Glatzels were all crazy and that David wasn't possessed. Uh, the chauffeur then blamed Debbie for all the trouble. He also said that the only devils that exist are the Rockefellers and the crooks in Washington. What the fuck? He's like... Now the driver is giving them shit? Yeah. He's like, the guy, he's like hey, go start the car. What do you do? I told you, you got to stop that Rockefeller shit, dude. Enough with the conspiracy theories. Oh, my God. He's like, sorry, I've been reading a lot of David Icke lately. <laughs> so oh, the monk told him that exorcism wasn't needed in this case. <laughs> and then he left insulting the Glatzel family and Father Virgilac. <laughs> it's like, there's some of the most outlandish scenes well, that yeah. happen. Where with is the monk from? <laughs> What, is he you know, like in a brown robe? You know, this is kind of like in the in the Amityville <laughs> series when the guy brought his own six pack over and then he's like, yeah. he leaves. He's like, taking my beer. I brought it. I'll take it with me. <laughs> <laughs> so from that point on, the Glatzels never got help from the diocese again. The church turned their back on them and there wasn't anything that they could do about it. The beast was given a free hand to act and it did. In September, the thing possessed David a few more times just so the family that it was still around. Towards the end of the month and into October, it directed its attention to Carl Jr., turning him into a violent madman. The Glatzels were living in hell again with no way of stopping it, as the priests had been scattered. Consequently, the family once more became its victims. 
Carl Jr., for example, pulled a loaded shotgun on Debbie and threatened to rearrange her face. He also sent Alan to the hospital when he stabbed him in the stomach with an iron rake. Oh, yeah. That's How right. the fuck do you stamp somebody with a ring? That's fucked up, right? <laughs> so, uh, Judy was, uh, was, was, was black Getting and creative blue. creative here. <laughs> Judy was black and blue from trying to break up the fighting. Most of the time, <laughs> Carl's anger was directed at Arnie, Judy, and Debbie. Um, Arnie became Carl Jr.'s favorite target. Carl destroyed every shred of clothing Arnie had, because remember, Arnie and Debbie were sleeping at their house at the time. Um, he also had cut up all his cassette tapes. He just, <gasps> yeah, he destroyed uh, cartons of cigarettes as soon as they were brought home. And he ruined Arnie's new work boots by filling them with axle grease the day he got them. <laughs> Carl Jr., or rather the beast working through him, did everything he could to break Arnie down. But Arnie never broke. He torched his Neil Diamond tapes. Oh, no. <laughs> she torched torch Neil. Neil? <laughs> ba, 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 da, 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 ba, da. <laughs> So by mid-October, Havoc and the family became so violent and threatening <laughs> that Brookfield police were called to the Glatzel home sometimes twice a week. It was only the Warrens' intercession that saved young Carl from being taken away by the police to a juvenile detention center. The police didn't know why they were perpetually responding to disturbance calls at the Glatzel property, and they were beginning to lose patience, so it became necessary to inform them in, a dis- in as discreet a manner as possible that a theological case was in progress with the Glatzel family. And that one required church involvement since July. Uh, it was explained that the source of the trouble was not the people, but rather an unexercised force that was oppressing them. The police were told that the potential for violence in the case had become a reality, and even the possibility of death could not be ruled out. They were requested to keep the family under surveillance, but not to arrest anyone until it was absolutely necessary. So uh, I can't believe that it says that the police actually agreed to this and the oppression of Carl Jr. died down until November. <laughs> Let me know if you need me to put a few uh, bullets in a demon. I'll fucking kill David for... First I gotta bind him. <laughs> the little fat boy. He's like, listen, I will kill both of them. I will line David and Carl up and kill them both with one bullet. You fucking... <laughs> you say go and... <laughs> So on October 14th, 1980, Mary Johnson fled the rental house in Newtown with Arnie's young sisters. Day by day, all summer and into the fall, little incidents kept building until the girls were so frightened that they refused to go into the house without Mary. So not only did Mary and the girls see, hear, and feel things, but their personalities were changed by the house. They fought among themselves, and nothing seemed to go right in the house. By October, living there had also broken them financially, And as a result, they were forced to return to Bridgeport. In late November, Arnie and Debbie also made a move. Debbie's job at the kennels in Newtown had been phased out in September, but the owner had recommended her to Alan Bono, the new manager of the Brookfield Kennels on Route 7, not far from the Glatzel home. Arnie, um, I'm sorry, Alan called Debbie in late October and offered her a job and a free apartment if she came to work for him. The apartment was in the four-unit block he managed on the property, along with the kennels, Debbie, Debbie took the apartment and the job. So the main reason that Debbie wanted the job was to get out of the Glatzel home in hopes that she and Arnie could finally start their life together. So in late September, Arnie, Debbie, and Jason moved into the apartment. Arnie continued to work as a tree surgeon, and they planned to get married in the spring. Now at the time, Alan Bono was 39 years old, short and stocky. He liked to talk about himself and the things he'd done and the places he'd been. Although, uh, because Alan wasn't married, he was lonely and melancholy, also talking about death almost every single day. 
Uh, he'd been back to in America for about a year after living in Australia for the last 17 years. Good day. Yeah, good day, mate. In Australia, he managed a plantation. I just don't like the sound of that. <laughs> <laughs> but he returned to America to manage the kennels for his sister, who owned the kennels. Um, he didn't know anything about kennel work. In fact, he hated animals. And Debbie noticed that Alan completely ignored the animals with the expensive boarded pets receiving no food and water or heat in the winter. And some even died. Asshole. Man. Can't wait till this motherfucker gets stabbed. Yeah, right. Oh, this is the guy. Yeah, so in the Glassel House, uh, activity had calmed down by December. Yet the beast remained present in this array of 43 forms. They knew it was there because it still talked to David, telling him of future events, which he passed on to the family. For the onset of winter, the entity was simply a lurking presence. The fact that the entity remained is a telling link between the summer possession case and the February murder. What it remained had the potential to possess again, and it did. The victim, though, was not Carl or David Jr., but Arnie Johnson. During that summer, Arnie experienced two flagrant possession seizures, uh, the second of which was a humiliating scene in the church. So then on uh, December, I'm sorry, on November 4th, Arnie came under possession a third time. Arnie and Debbie had gone to the rental house in Newton to check on Mary Johnson and the girls, hoping to repair their relationship. However, when they got to the house, they discovered that it was vacant as she and the girls had fled two weeks earlier. Both Arnie and Debbie were glad to see she was gone. Debbie refused to stay in the house and immediately went, in, uh, went outside where she ran into the landlord's niece and a friend. They started talking, and a minute later, when Arnie walked out of the house, he became possessed. It happened suddenly and unexpectedly the minute he shut the door and put his feet on the front step. First, Arnie's body trembled violently all over, then the whole appearance of his face changed into the same hating sneer that was seen on David all summer. What stood there was not Arnie, it was the beast again. The whole thing lasted less than a minute, but it proved that it could possess any of them if it wanted to. Now, it was another two months before Arnie was possessed a fourth time in the middle of January. This time, uh, Debbie was the only witness. The entity possessed Arnie as fully and completely as it had with the other three times. As with the previous incidents, there was no talking or communication. And what sees Arnie was preoccupied with rage. For the long five minutes that the possession lasted, it virtually ignored Debbie, but angrily punched a hole through a thick wooden chest before withdrawing. Debbie thought that uh, not even a karate expert could do what he did, and the next morning there wasn't even a mark on Arnie's hand. You think you could punch through like an arm wire? <laughs> Fuck yeah, dude. You know, how many, you know how many Bruce Lee movies I've watched? Oh, yeah, you know how many doors <laughs> I broke down? First, I'd have to have some good hair on. Oh, Mikey wants some hair on. Then I'll punch through arm wires. I don't, know, I don't know. I think for punching through arm wires, I want some cocaine. Yeah, I'm right. like, I'm like, PCP. Yeah! <laughs> They're like, no, no, just one punch. Like, you don't got to shred the motherfucker. <laughs> All right, but it was the final two possessions yeah. of Arnie that lasted to uh, led to catastrophe that took place within 10 minutes of each other. The first was an attempt to kill, and the sixth and last episode resulted in murder. The reason why the entity chose to work through Arnie was so the burden of murder would be imposed on him in direct retribution for his challenges to the beast at the time it possessed David. In the end, what took place was not a murder, it was a diabolical execution. Now that's <laughs> I got an awesome picture of George Washington here. He's holding like what do you say that? Like a, a like a ray gun? <laughs> Where the fuck did you? And, it, and he's got an he's got a metal hand and an axe holding like he just killed a predator or something, dude. It's glowing green blood. I love it. 
killed his kid. <laughs> now, we got that on there because the Sunday night before the killing occurred, uh, Debbie and Arnie drove to Bridgeport and picked up Leah, Megan, and Jennifer, Arnie's sisters. The next day, Monday, was George Washington's birthday, a holiday in Connecticut. So the girls had no school, and they were going to stay overnight with Arnie and Debbie. Relations between Arnie, Debbie, and the Johnsons had probably returned to normal when Mary moved out of that rental house. So that Monday, February 16th, 1981, Arnie got up at 7 a.m. as usual. He had to be at work by 8. However, for the last time in a long time, I'm sorry, for the first time in a long time, he felt a little ill. He had a throbbing headache, an upset stomach, and chest congestion. He simply couldn't function, so at 7.15 a.m., he called in sick. Debbie gave him two aspirins and an antibiotic called tetracycline, and he returned to, board, uh, returned to bed. But the commotion caused uh, by his little sisters, Arnie couldn't sleep, and he got up for the day shortly after 10. Meanwhile, the kennels were still open for business that day. Debbie had several grooming assignments, and the girls were eager to watch. Debbie introduced the three to Alan Bono, who later invited the entire group, including Arnie, out to lunch at the Mug and Munch, a narrow little uh, place wedged into a small strip mall. Mug and Munch. I don't, that sounds like it could be a strip club, too. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> but you know what? I got. You know, my brother said this. You know, oh, that stupid idiot. He, the, the houses, <laughs> the cars, the land, and, and even the people, they all look junky. What, what's the way that with these people? It, it, it all looks horrible, Sammy. Nah. They look I mean, dirty. They look dirty. Of, there's, actually, there's a lot of wealth in Connecticut. Really, Mikey? Oh, I yeah. mean, look at this place. I think but, part of the reason is a lot of these pictures are taking place in like October, November, where it looks like, you know, all the, <laughs> the leaves are off the trees and there's, <laughs> it's not like, there's, I mean, there's it doesn't of, look full of life, that's for there, sure. There's a lot of like, you know, bad parts <laughs> along the East Coast as well. I mean, you do have your New England blue bloods, but like, look at like Baltimore. <laughs> New England blue bloods. <laughs> Lots of hair on going on in Baltimore. Oh, there's a lot of hair on going. Ah, Oh, hello. Alan liked to uh, take people out and like to buy them lunch just to have company, but he was also a heavy drinker. By 11 a.m., Alan was half in the bag after putting away a couple carafes of wine. (laughs) After lunch, they stopped at a pet (laughs) supply store and got shampoo and other supplies that Debbie would need for an afternoon of dog grooming. And on the way back to the kennel, Alan made them stop at a liquor store so he could buy a big bottle of red wine for the afternoon. So when they returned, Arnie went up to the apartment for a nap. Debbie went uh, went to work grooming dogs, and Alan went to work on the wine in the downstairs office. Debbie said that when she started working, she felt a sense of foreboding dread that something tragic was about to take place. By 4 p.m., Judy Gladsell also had a sense of impending doom, and she even called the kennel multiple times to try and get Debbie and Arnie to leave the property. Debbie brushed it off and promised to bring Arnie and the girls for dinner later on. Now, by 5 a.m., Arnie was up and feeling better. He joined Alan in the office and fixed Alan's speaker wiring for the stereo. Judy called again around uh, 5.30, frantic and begging for them to leave the kennel. By now, Alan Bono was fully shit-faced. At the time of his death, Alan's blood alcohol level (laughs) registered over four times the legal limit at 3.3. So he insisted that they stay and have dinner with him, and Debbie resisted. But Alan created uh, such an obnoxious scene that she relented and ordered three pizzas. So shortly before 6 p.m. then, uh, Debbie and the three girls went out to pick up the pizzas. Arnie, meanwhile, went up to the apartment to check on George, their sheepdog, and it changed out of his work boots and in the shoes. Curiously, the shoes that Arnie put on belonged to David. And it's just, I think that's kind of funny that he was, that this 12-year-old boy could fit in the shoes that yeah, could also yeah. fit a 20-year-old man. <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> 
Now, when Debbie and uh, Arnie's sisters returned with the pizzas, they found Arnie in the kennel office with Alan Bono, who was still drinking wine. Damn. Yeah, Debbie suggested that they eat in Alan's apartment, mostly because he was so fucked up that she knew he was going to black out, and she didn't want him doing so in her place. <laughs> Before Al um, Alan left his office, he turned the stereo up as loud as it could go. Still and when wine. He, and when he, that girl. No, actually, I was about to say, right now, uh, right now what you're hearing is uh, Blondie's is a... Yeah. Yeah, pass my red wine on. <laughs> yeah. So the blaring music didn't stop him from trying to turn on the TV set, uh, but it wouldn't work, and Alan began shaking and hitting the TV, yelling loudly about it. Alan then moved to the wall and put his fist through the drywall. At that, Debbie made an easy decision to get the girls out of there. So uh, Arnie led the way down the stairs with Debbie right behind him. At the bottom of the stairs was the door to the kennel office, and Artie darted in to turn off the blaring stereo. <laughs> There's no more Blondie. I'm sorry. Aww. Damn, I was just getting into that, dude. I, I fucking love Blondie, goddammit, though. <laughs> Great song. Great song. Great song. That's right. So when Artie emerged from the office, Debbie was holding open the front door, but the girls didn't follow behind her because Alan Bono was blocking their way. It was at this moment that the fifth possession of Arnie occurred. Arnie walked past Debbie, and she seemed to think that it wasn't Arnie since his features had changed, and she sensed it was the beast. Arnie then attacked Debbie, and within seconds, she was on the ground in the doorway, being kicked violently in the stomach, chest, and head. So Arnie's 15-year-old <laughs> sister Leah got past Alan and attempted to get Arnie off Debbie. She said that when Arnie looked at her, he looked like the Incredible Hulk. His teeth were barred and his eyes were shifting and going crazy. Leah was enough of a distraction to Arnie and Debbie that she was able to get free and escape. And immediately, Arnie's composure and appearance returned to normal after being startled to death. I wonder if uh, Arnie, like... he. Pop that top button on his pants. I was just going to say, you know, <laughs> I just noticed that too. That shows that he's breaking through, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he's cockstrong. Oh, yeah, he's cockstrong. I love strong, Lou Ferrigno's haircut, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, very, I don't know, it just looks very funny, like a lemming or something. I know, right? <laughs> so, as the rest of the kids filed downstairs, Alan again got in front of them and refused to let them leave. In the process, he hurt Jennifer by grabbing her hard by the arm and refusing to let it go when she started crying. And by the way, I think I'm almost 100% sure Jennifer was the one who had cerebral palsy. So you could imagine that scene, how fucked up that is. Oh, God. So Gerard Brittle does make it a point to say that from a legal view, this is called a forceful restraint of a minor, which is a felonious act, and thus Alan Bono was committing a crime. Alan refused to let go of Jennifer until Debbie strongly yanked his hair from behind and upon being free, Jennifer ran to the car to hide. The spectacle didn't stop with the release of Jennifer. Instead, with his two hands now free, Alan Bono, drunk and angry, attempted to start a fight with Arnie. It was at this point that the sixth and last possession occurred, the fulfillment of the deadly pre prediction made the summer before. On February 16th, 1981, just after 6pm, on the front lawn of the kennels, in few, full view of passing traffic, Alan Bono began taunting Arnie to fight. When he grabbed Arnie, a tussle ensued, and to protect himself, Arnie grabbed Alan's wrists. Soon their hands and fingers were interlocked in a struggle, with their arms raised above their heads. Even though Alan was intoxicated, he was surprisingly strong. Leah and Debbie sought to break up the inner, inner altercation by trying to pull them apart. Debbie wedged herself between Arnie and Alan, while Leah grabbed Arnie around the waist and tried to yank him backward. Leah said that Arnie was unmovable, like a statue. That's when two different voices started coming from Arnie, one a screeching voice and the other a heavy animal growl. 
But then Arnie simply backed away from Alan, and Alan fell to the ground face forward, not making a sound or clutching for his body in any way. Alan backed away and disappeared behind the kennels, and Debbie and Leah screamed frantically for help as they approached Alan, who they figured had either fainted, either from drunkenness or a heart attack. So when the girls uh, flipped Alan on his back, they saw blood and pulled up his shirt, revealing two stab wounds. Jennifer said that she then heard a voice in her head, that of a man that said to her, This is punishment for Arnie's challenges to me. If he ever challenges me again, I will kill him. I've killed before, and I'll kill again! You come up with a knife and cut off a piece of my ear. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, hey, boy, boy named Sue. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so no one saw the knife during the altercation, but after Jennifer heard the voice, she left the car and where she was hiding and noticed that Arnie's knife was on the ground about 10 feet from Alan. The knife was a wooden-handled folding woodsman knife about f- with a five-inch blade on it. The last time it was seen on the table was in the, kennis- was, uh, in the table in the kennel's office where Arnie had been using it to strip the speaker wire while fixing Alan's stereo. Jennifer remembered that there was blood all over the blade, but what scared her the most was that the knife was glowing. What? What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> now, Debbie screamed desperately for help, but no one responded. Some of the people in the adjacent apartments actually shut their windows as Alan Bono lay dying. <laughs> Pretty fucked up, right? <laughs> shut up out there. I'm trying to watch TV. <laughs> Die quietly. So, yeah. <laughs> so frantic and confused, Debbie ran to the office and uh, called Judy for help. In the background, Debbie could hear David screaming and crying, and he told them that the beast did it by possessing both Alan and Arnie, and that the helpers were all there laughing and cheering him on. David said that the beast stabbed Alan five times, although Debbie had only seen the two stab wounds. When paramedics arrived, Alan Bono was on his back, dying from two stab wounds, one of which had penetrated his heart. Strangely, the first two adults who observed Alan's wounds upon arriving at the scene only saw two stab wounds as well. Minutes later, though, when paramedics went to work on him, there were unquestionably four discernible stab wounds to the chest and the body. One of the wounds stretched from the, his stomach to the base of his heart. Uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation techniques failed to revive Alan at the scene, and he was rushed by ambulance to the, to the hospital about five miles away. It was in the emergency room of Dansbury Hospital at 739 that Alan Bono was pronounced dead. The cause of death was stabbing, and as for the number of wounds, there were four deep track stab wounds to the chest and abdomen, and one non-lethal stab wound to the shoulder, five wounds in all, just as David had claimed. So Arnie was arrested an hour after the killing at 7.25 p.m., and all points bulletin had been put out on him, but ironically, it was not the police who apprehended Arnie, but the ambulance driver who just brought Alan Bono to Danbury Hospital. Norman Ellis was his name. After returning to the Brookfield Fire Station, Norman had heard Arnie's description broadcast on the police radio and spotted him as he walked confused and alone down Silvermine Road, which is not far from the Glatzel's house. Arnie put up no resistance, and he was, a, 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 he was oblivious to the stabbing that had just occurred. Near hysteria and still suffering the uh, lingering effects of the possession, Arnie's only words to the ambulance driver were a solemn, please help me. Arnie was detained until a police cruiser picked him up five minutes later. Arnie was then handcuffed and taken to the police station. At 7.40, a call came into the police station from Dansbury Hospital with the message that Alan Bono was dead. Arnie was then charged with murder, but curiously, his response to this charge was to fall asleep. He was uh, reportedly incoherent and babbling before that time. 
When Arnie woke up about 20 minutes later, he said that he had no clue where he was and that his whole body was numb. He also had no strength at all. And his recollections were that of a, that, of that night stopped abruptly at 6 p.m. Now, given Arnold's uh, previous incoherence, they again read him his rights and informed him that he was under arrest for the charge of murder for a second time. This time, Arnie responded with incredulity, saying that uh, there was no way he killed Alan and that the police must be confused. Arnie wouldn't give the police a confession, but that didn't stop the police from taking statements from Arnie's sisters, Megan and Jennifer, who were hiding in the car and never even saw the murder. The police composed incriminating language that linked Arnie directly to the stabbing. No lawyer was present at the time. Debbie, Leah, and Megan and Jennifer gave their statements to the police. And the statements were not uh, written by the witnesses themselves, but by a single police officer. No second officer was present as an official corroborating witness, nor were any tape recordings made. Most important, pertinent corrections were not made to the witnesses' statements, although corrections were demanded by the girls at the time. In addition, Mary Johnson had an acute attack of colitis and could not oversee the interrogation of her daughters. In the end, Jennifer was made to sign her name to an official statement she could not read or comprehend, and Megan signed her name believing the policeman would keep his word and take the references he wrote into the copy, claiming he, she saw Arnie stab Alan Bono with a knife. Now, lastly, uh, one, one of the, uh, once the statements were taken, there was never any countersignature in the specific box provided on the form by a second officer, let alone chief of police, uh, to verify the authenticity of what had been written. So, in other words... This officer could have just written anything he wanted on it here, and no one could have been the wiser, you know? Mm -hmm. So Gerard Brito writes as though the uh, police are monsters for not believing the Warrens' claims that uh, the murder was the result of a complex theological case of demonic possession, and everyone in the story acts incredulous that the police didn't just let Arnie out of jail immediately after hearing the details, but after all, the murder had been committed, and what, uh, what was absurd, though, is that the police ascribed a false motive to the crime, that Arnie was a jealous suitor who killed Alan Bono as the result of a so-called lover's quarrel over Debbie. They can't come up with something better than that? I think they were all just fucked up drinking, you know what I'm saying? Sammy, Sammy you, think, you think there was a little heroin in, in the police department? All Vino. In the police department? Yeah. Of, probably. Some, some confiscated right. stuff, but I don't all think right. he's shooting heroin in the police department. All right. <laughs> I don't think Arnie shot any heroin, really. <laughs> so Arnie was arraigned that week in Danbury Superior Court on the charge of murder, and bail was set at $125,000, one of the highest ever levied in the state of Connecticut. Neither the Glatzels nor the Johnsons could obtain such an exorbitant amount of money. Accordingly, Arnie was remanded to the Bridgeport Correctional Center, barely five blocks from where his mother was living now. So the Glatzels and the Johnsons reasoned that exposing the truth was the only way to prove that Arnie was innocent, believing that the truth would set him free. Everyone present at the scene of the crime did see death, but they also saw possession. Most critical of all, those who witnessed the killing insisted that they did not see Arnie commit the crime of which he was accused, although the truth they sought to tell was an, was an unconventional one, Without legal precedent, it was the only truth they had. But it was not the Brookfield possession case that made headlines two days after the killing. What brought the press running was a 19-year-old male charged with a felony murder who was going to enter the unprecedented plea of not guilty by virtue of possession. The plea was promptly misunderstood as a ridiculous cop-out by another criminal, a new twist on the devil-made-me-do-it excuse. So the media blitz that surrounded the story was fueled in part by the Warrens, whose agents promised that lectures, a book, and a movie detailing the gruesome case were in the works. 
Uh, Martin Manella, the lawyer that Mary Johnson hired to represent Arnie, took on the case free of charge and ended up receiving calls from all over the world about what was being called the Demon Murder Trial. Now, Manella traveled to uh, England and met with, the lawyer, with, met with the lawyers who had been involved in two similar cases, though neither actually went to trial. Marty planned to bring in exorcism specialists from Europe and threatened to subpoena the priest who oversaw David Glatzel's exorcism if they did not cooperate with the defense. Now, there was also, <laughs> Martin Manella's an interesting character. Is like, there was also a Washington Times article I found where he, he told the reporter, he's like, think about it. What's the guy's name? Bono, right? And what kind of name is Bono? Italian, right? So, what does Bono mean in Italian? It means good. And evil likes to destroy so good. Dude. Case closed, guy. Dude, come on. Your Honor, I rest my case, guy. Genius. <laughs> Pure genius. So, in the same article, Manella says that the wounds in Alan Bono's body were too deep for them to have been the work of human hands. Uh, but that fact was uh, going to be hard to determine since the body was cremated. He's then also quoted as saying, It's too bad. There's nothing like seeing the body. <laughs> this guy was upset. He's like, I want to, I want to show them the actual dead body in court. He's like, count a couple, two or three stab wounds. Oh, there's nothing I love as good as a deep, <laughs> penetrating stab wound. <laughs> so the bad press and publicity didn't matter to Arnie. What mattered were the statements taken by police on the night of the killing. Uh, those statements became the foundation for the state's case against him and were used on March 19th, 1981, with an 18-member grand jury in Danbury formally indicted Arnie for the stabbing death of Arne Alan Bono. Now, even though Megan uh, Johnson kept telling the, ju the judge and the jury that she did not write the things in her statement from the night of the murder, an indictment was handed down and the trial date was set for October in 1981. That spring, thousands of letters flowed in from Brookfield from around the country and around the world. Pseudo-experts schooled in matters of the occult offered to testify against both Arnie and David, all claiming that they had the real answer. One claimed he could prove diabolical possession was hysteria. Another claimed that the root of the problem was schizophrenia. A Hollywood magician wrote that the case was a farce and the cause was mental. I think that was maybe, uh, what's his name, David... Uh, Copperfield. I was just, I was just fucking around. <laughs> I was just thinking that. So when the oh. television series Quincy ran a program on Tourette syndrome, hundreds of letters poured in diagnosing David not not as being possessed, but as a victim of Tourette's. <laughs> you like, you think Quincy Some was strong funny? Tourette's right there. <laughs> so David was tested for Tourette's and other diseases by a psychiatrist during the fall of 1980, and the results were negative. By the time all the letters had arrived, David and Arnie were declared as suffering from everything from a character disorder to neurosis, psychosis, schizophrenia, and a host of other pathological disorders, including compulsive lying. So one of the consequences of the murder was uh, that help for both David and Arnie through the Diocese of Bridgeport was entirely eliminated. Seeking support from the church to substantiate the claim of possession, Arnie and the Gladstones were abandoned a second time. Rather than supporting the family when they needed it most, Diocesan officials released statements to the press that there was no exorcism, which is technically true, and that there were two separate cases, Arnie and David's, also true, but one had spawned the other. Uh, officials claimed that the church involvement extended only to David Glatzel, not to Arnie Johnson, which was technically untrue, but the rope was cut, and Arnie, now just 19 years old, was truly on his own. 
Judy said that one time she went to the rectory and they wouldn't even open the door for her. Ed Warren said that he, when he tried to call for Father's McDonald and Sheehan, the secretary in the office repeatedly referred him to the church lawyer. Now, in the summer of 1981, the Warrens sought help for the family in the traditional Catholic church in Quebec, Canada, where the Warrens claimed many of their difficult cases were resolved. In America, once the possession case became publicly known, the Catholic church was far more concerned with bad publicity than its responsibility to aid a child in distress. Of course. Yeah, in Canada, it was a different story, though. The church was there was more traditional and ready to help. And there, not only was David later exercised with the entity, but that summer, the cause of the whole situation was finally revealed. So through their connections in Canada, the Warrens were put in touch with a gifted priest in his 50s named Father Gerard, who was assigned to a small suburban church outside Quebec. Father Gerard was an exorcist, gifted in what the Warrens called the power of discernment, which means that without being told, he already had hidden or secret knowledge of a mystical nature. Although Father Gerard had never met the Glatzels before, they weren't present at this meeting, by the way, just the Warrens and Father Gerard, he told the Warrens the true origin of the possession. So this next part is uh, pretty close to actually to the story in the Conjuring film. I didn't know this before we we started this uh, whole series here, but Father Gerard said that the Glatzels were the victims of a death curse. More specifically, the curse had been levied on David and Carl Jr. with the act taking place approximately a year before the murder in upstate New York. The Glatzel family had considered the people who cursed them to be their best friends. However, these people were Satanists, and in order to derive benefit from a high devil. They purposefully bound the two innocent boys to a curse or a pledge of the soul. So they got this priest who there is pretty much acting like a Merlin the wizard, like I am all knowing. Yes. And he it's said oh, the... hey, by the way, your best friends are actually <laughs> Satan worshippers and they cursed you. That's what he says, yeah. That's what they claim here. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So uh, activation of this devil entity was made on the day that a member of the Glatzel household, Debbie, was drawn by ordinary circumstances into the haunted Newtown rental house on July 2nd, and everything unfolded from there. So Father Gerard explained that when Arnie challenged the devil and David, he may have saved his life, but at the same time, the burden of death fell on him. Technically, Arnie should have been killed, but the fate of death... <laughs> that hurt your noggin there? <laughs> no, I went to scratch my head and I hit the mic. Oh. So Arnie should have been killed, but the fate of death could have befallen any human soul. In this case, the unfortunate victim was Alan Bono, who Father Gerard said, with total conviction, is with the Lord now, having been killed through a violation of God's law by the devil. When the, warden, uh, when the Warrens returned to Connecticut and met with the Glatzels, they found out that, yes, they did have friends in upstate New York that they considered best friends, but that they no longer dealt with these people because they noticed that every time they hung out with them, trouble and fighting always erupted in the home after their <laughs> visits. So Carl Glatzel told the Warrens the name of the people in question, explaining that they'd met on a snowmobile outing in 1976. He said that on winter weekends, he'd bring Judy and the boys to a snowmobile lodge in Long Lake, New York, and that's where they met these people, becoming friends. Once a year, they'd meet for a weekend and snowmobile together, family to family, they were a married couple, Carl and Judy's age, with two kids, and they all got along well. But after they'd separated, there'd always be trouble. David lost his spleen one year, Carl Jr. tried to kill David with a rope the next year, and in 1979, the last year they met, Carl and Judy each collapsed with sciatica. Doctor said I need a Becky out of me. <laughs> <laughs> now, after fetching an old calendar from the last year, Judy revealed 
that the date of that last visit to be February 16th, 1980, one year exactly to the date of the murder. Damn. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> now, Lorraine asked if the uh, other family had any interest in the occult, and Judy said yes, that the couple's house had chalices, candles, daggers, and a skull displayed on an altar. She said that the bedroom of the house was painted blood red and had black velvet furnishings. Another part of the house, uh, the dog had shit all over their rugs, <laughs> but they refused to clean it up. Oh, God. Kind of like that apartment at the end of Something About Mary where there's like dog shit all oh, over you. Remember? God. <laughs> <Mental> so nasty. <laughs> it's doo-doo. But this whole time they're dealing with the demon, the, you know, devils and shit like that. And they don't <laughs> think maybe something could have to do with the Satanists that yeah. have skulls on their altar. <laughs> When they're listening to the band Coven on vinyl, it's like, hmm, no, they're, they're, they're normal. They're normal people. So the Warrens then explain the connection between the murder and the family's uh, snowmobile friends in upstate New York. Carl and Judy were stunned at the malicious wickedness brought upon them by people who feigned friendship, oppression, possession, exorcism, physical injury, and even the tragic death of an innocent man that had transpired without the family ever once understanding the cause or origin of it all. Now that the answer was known, there was still nothing the Gladstones could do. The worst had already happened, and they could only try to free David and attempt to keep Arnie from being sent to prison. The new information, revealed during the summer of 1981, finally led to a resolution of David Gladstone's case. In the fall, correspondence and pertinent information flowed north, including a 12-page request for an exorcism. In October, after much consideration, the request was granted. Major exorcism, however, was not called for at this stage, as David was no longer possessed. You think at a certain point they'd be like, do the fucking ritual we're on him, goddammit. Like, get this. We're done hearing about this. <laughs> so instead, what took place in a small uh, stone church just outside Quebec City on the snowy morning of November 7th, 1981, was what's known as a charismatic deliverance. The technique employed was the classical form of exorcism known as the laying on of the hands in which the afflicting force is expelled through the body of the exorcist. The entire procedure took less than 30 minutes, and when it was over, the creator of all the evil experienced by the family was finally identified, and his name was a shock to all. Two priests were required to perform the deed. One served as the exorcist, the other as a religious medium. All members of the Glatzel family were present. David, dressed in a shirt and tie like his brothers, sat in a straight-laced, uh, straight-back chair in front of the family. Uh, when Father Gerard commanded the entity to leave the body and soul of David... They heard the beast's voice come out of a priest named Father McEwen telling them to let go of David, that if they were that they were all just men and would be unable to cast him out. Debbie felt a searing pain at the base of her neck. Alan turned cold, and David began to shudder. Now, Father Gerard again commanded the entity to reveal itself and leave. Suddenly, a loud, loud crash of glass erupted next to Carl Sr., followed by hard poundings on the wall directly behind a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Papers on a nearby table began to fly around as a gust of wind had blown through the church. Then more vicious poundings walloped the wall by the statue, and whisperings of a multitude of voices filled the air. Father Gerard again commanded the entity to say its name. He said, Say my name, demon! Say my name! <laughs> I love the idea of him smoking during the exorcism. Go, oh, demon! Do the coffin, no, Sammy. You want some cheese. <laughs> The coffin? Yeah, when you said you, when people were smoking, you're like, <laughs> <laughs> Be gone from this boy, demon! Parlez-vous français, demon? The spirit of this demon has left this boy. 
Now go back to America. <laughs> that turned into a not French Canadian anymore, I think, by the end of that impression. <laughs> so, uh, Father Gerard again commanded the entity to say its name, and he himself was now shaking frenetically as the possessing spirit entered him. Moments later, the voice of the beast spoke one final time. It gave the mandatory sign of departure by revealing the name by which it was known. It was the devil, second only to Satan, and through the mouth of Father Gerard, it declared, I am Beelzebub. <laughs> so silence followed as everyone calmed down. Then David announced that he finally fell free, a statement that would actually hold true. So then Arnie Johnson's trial had begun a, a month earlier on October 28th, 1981. In May, Arnie had been given the option to plead guilty to a lesser charge of manslaughter, but Arnie's reply to this plea bargaining effort by the state was that he did not kill anyone, so he refused to plead guilty. Arnie asserted that the state of Connecticut had accused him of murder, and consequently, they would have to prove it. Set in this uh, conviction, Arnie sweated out in an inner-city jail during the hot summer months and into the fall, anxious to prove his innocence and certain that the truth would set him free. The proceedings were held in Danbury Superior Court, a large dome structure at the far end of the city's main street, um, as would become the daily pattern, Arnie arrived at the courthouse that morning in a white uh, sheriff's van on the bars on the windows. Who is he the... handcuffed to? Is that a girl? He's That's just... a fucking hippie. Yeah, he's just handcuffed to another hippie. You know? No, no, no. Mm. I'm talking about the guy himself. He looks like a like a the St. Valentine's Day thing face. Oh, yeah. Boom. That guy kind of looks like, uh, you know who the, the, the police officer escorting him looks like? Is You know who Robert, uh, Robert Dav Davi is? Yeah. <laughs> he's like... Robert Davi? He's got the best... Uh, speech in what was that movie? Uh, Showgirls. You ever seen that? Oh, yes. He's like, listen, listen. Guy comes in, he sprays all over you, comes all over you. There's no, that's a big problem. Problem. You call security. Guy comes in, he gives you a big tip, comes all over you. That's all good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> that movie is so corny. Yeah, oh, it's horrible, so sleazy too. But Sammy, that dude looks a little weird, dude. A little bit. So the vehicle looked like it would uh, belong to the Dog Pound. Local and national media reporters and photographers gathered around the truck as Arnie was led into the building. He was wearing a suit and tie Debbie had brought him. Uh, although the proceedings were scheduled to start at 10 a.m., the gavel didn't come down until about 2 o'clock. 35 minutes into the start of the trial, a devastating blow arrived. Arnie's attorney, Martin Manella, asked the prospective juror if he believed in God. The juror answered yes. Then the attorney, testing the waters, asked how about the other way around. You believe in the devil, too? The gavel came down and the proceedings were stopped. So the presiding judge, Robert Callahan, asked Arnie's attorney if his question bore a relation to defense of a possession. The attorney answered yes. Obviously prepared for this eventuality, the judge immediately issued a premeditated and absolute ruling, ruling that he would not permit a possession defense to be advanced in his courtroom, period. Which is weird that they swear you into a Bible. But yeah. <laughs> But then again, there is no proof of demons or yeah, you know yeah, who knows? So they, he, they would just they would just say criminally crim, criminally insane, right? Yeah, kind of. So he stated that Arnie's attorney had not filed the proper procedural form for the defense of a crime involving mental irregularities, and that there was no legal precedent in American law for pursuing the unscientific defense of possession. Arnie's attorney objected strenuously to the sudden and prejudiced ruling. He cited his client's right to a fair trial, the right of the accused to present any defense that proves innocence, the inapplicability of insanity in the case, and finally, that the evidence of a possession was critical in Arnie's case 
because it affected his client's intention to commit a crime, the very basis of murder law. So the judge insisted obligingly, then rejected all of Manella's points. He contended that possession couldn't be proven, that it didn't affect intent, that demonology was not a science but a hobby, and most incredible of all, that the notion of diabolical possession was irrelevant, the crime of which Arnie was charged. Unbelievably, even before the trial began, the judge dismissed the very essence of Arnie Johnson's defense. For Arnie, it was an outrage. In effect, the state of Connecticut had simultaneously charged him with the crime of murder and denied him his constitutional right to defend himself. Because the underlying facts made the public uncomfortable, they were disallowed, leaving Arnie, Arnie with no other defense except to lie. Now, he was standing trial for his life, but anything he might have said in his own behalf was barred from the courtroom the very first day. The media and the photographers left, stating that all the sensationalism had just been removed from the case. What do you guys think? Should you be able to claim whatever the fuck you want in court? No, man, because... Well, most people do. <laughs> you, you know what, Sammy? I mean, you could say, I, hey, I'm possessed by the devil, and then we all go, eh, guilty. They, they, <laughs> you know? Dude, dude, I'm telling you, these fucking, these, well, these, these fucking, this fucking world... The things that people say to, you know, prove like, uh, you know, I'm insane, I, I wasn't uh, in charge of my actions because I'm insane... The, the the amount of like nonsense that people will come up with, it's really it's really not shocking. I, I, I agree. Crazy. I agree. Man, some of the stuff I see on the news, Sammy, dude, they, they, these guys, I don't know where they come up with some of their some of their lies and testimonies, and you know, like like they want that's from politicians, like that one, oh, yeah. like like that one <laughs> lawyer. What's his name, Mike? The guy that killed his wife and kid, and and embezzled like four million dollars from one person, six million. It's all over the well, news right now. Man. Was that the guy too? It was like he fucking they got a search history. It's like how do I dispose of a body? How exactly do I cut up a body? How I, do I, 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 I did? I didn't. I didn't. How long do I wait to call the police? I like, don't know. I don't know about that. But come on, dude. <laughs> wow, there's some who, fucking. Who, who, nut do, you, who do you think coined out. the phrase "the devil made me do it"? Was it Arnie? No, I think it's been going on. That's probably like an old. Yeah, it's been a while. Maybe like you know, 1600s thing. Mm. It's like, doth the devil make me do it? Yeah. Okay, so the judge's ruling not only muzzled Arnie, it also threw open the door for the state to make virtually any case it wanted against him. The state prosecutor took full advantage of the pejorative ruling to press a straightforward murder case against Arnie. Amazingly, the state's case amounted to a parroting of the Brookfield Police Department's initial rendition of the case. Accordingly, the prosecution asserted that Arnie Johnson stabbed Alan Bono to death in a drunken brawl. The real devil was alcohol, said the prosecution, and under its influence... Arnie lost control of himself and killed Alan Bono, a man who was the victim of an uncontrollable rage. Well, wait a minute. Was I know Alan was drunk on wine, but was Arnie drinking? Uh, you know what? They didn't... I don't think so. I don't think no, he was. No, no, They don't say anything about him at all. Yeah. Hmm. But to drive this claim home, during the first week of the trial, the state brought in a parade of expert witnesses, such as medical examiners, pathologists, toxicologists, and police. However, none of the experts could directly link Arnie to the crime... The blood found in the knife was type O, the same blood type as Alan Bono's, but the blood could not be positively identified as the exact blood of the victim. Furthermore, although Arnie was supposed to be in immediate proximity to his victim, no blood was found on Arnie's shoes or clothes. Now, a large folding knife that uh, the large folding knife that Arnie used in tree work had no fingerprints on it. Consequently, it could not be positively identified as being the murder weapon. Lastly, no positive connection could be made between the victim's wounds and the knife that was exhibited in court, meaning any similar knife could have done it. 
The only thing the expert witnesses managed to prove was that Alan Bono was dead. Failing to establish a true physical link, the state insisted, I'm sorry, instead turned to Arnie's sisters during the second week of the trial. Debbie Glatzel, who should have been the prime witness, was never even called to testify. Since during the grand jury proceedings, she had described the death of Alan Bono the way she really saw it, and the prosecution therefore wanted no part of her. Now, what developed was an ugly scene where sisters were pitted against their brother and made to testify against him regarding the highly contestable statements taken at the police station the night of the killing. But the girls would not comply. They'd uh, come to tell the truth, although the state insisted that they endorse the fiction of stabbing and drunkenness. The girls tried to say that Arnie didn't do it, and the state uh, said that they were committing perjury by not affirming the statements prepared by the police the night of the February 16th. Caught in the terrible crossfire, the girls cried on the witness stand, but they wouldn't lie and betray their brother. Not one of the girls said she saw Arnie stab Ellen Bona with a knife. Instead, they recanted the original statements attributed to them the night of February 16th and were then declared as hostile witnesses. So after the state made its case, Arnie's attorney, in a last-minute gesture, asserted a secondary defense. He contended that on the night of the killing, Arnie had come to the aid of his younger sister, who was being forcibly detained by a violent, intoxicated man who was already engaged in felonious behavior, that forceful restraint of a minor. The defense uh, attorney contended that Arnie had come to the self-defense of another and that in that circumstance, force was required to save his sister further from harm. Had Alan Bono acted like a gentleman on the night in question, the lawyer contended Arnie wouldn't be in court today. In the end, the state took two weeks to make its case, the defense, the two, uh, two days. The state depicted Arnie as a drunk the night of the crime, and his sisters were depicted as liars. But a man was dead and Arnie's knife was found at the scene. The state argued who else could have done it, who allegedly had a violent altercation with the victim just before death occurred. The state closed by asking questions instead of supplying answers, never explained where the knife came from, and never explained why there was a discrepancy in the number of reported stab wounds, never answered the question of how the wounds arrived, and it never provided intent for the murder. The jury was simply asked to bridge the gap of appearance and reality with the facts that were never provided. What do you guys think? Would The Devil Made Me Do It have uh, been a cool like courtroom drama type of movie? Maybe like uh, The Exorcism of Emily Rose? Maybe yeah. for a different format? That was well done. That yeah. was well done because of the, the, the priest. Did a magnificent job. No, oh, yeah. She did a magnificent job. But I'm telling you, seeing me right now, if any of us did some crime and went in there and said, hey, man, I was possessed, they're going to throw you in a freaking tight oh, leather no jacket doubt. in a <laughs> padded room. They're going to look at your record, Shit. your past. They're going to listen to the podcast and they'll be like, nope, nope, guilty. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> No, seriously. Yeah. Uh, come on, Sammy. You, the, 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 free, the legalized system now, they'll throw, you, they'll throw you and your mama into jail. Hell yeah, they'll throw everybody in jail Dude, here. they don't care. <laughs> they, they're not going to put up with this. Well, at 3 p.m. that Friday, November 20th, the judge charged the jury with the responsibility of coming to a decision based on any one of three verdicts. Murder, the commission of an act with an intent to kill. Manslaughter, less culpable than murder. Or not guilty. Whatever the decision, the jury's verdict had to be unanimous. So at 3.30 p.m., the jury left the courtroom and began its deliberations. First day of the jury remained sequestered until about 9.45, but failed to re reach a verdict. Word leaked out that the jury was confused, saying that they had a mass of information that seemingly provided nothing. At 10 p.m., the judge sent the jury home for the weekend and instructed them to return on Monday morning. 
On Monday morning, November 23rd, the jury returned and continued their deliberations. They remained sequestered all day, also remaining confused as question after question came from the deliberation room. By 5 p.m., no verdict had been reached, and again, the, the jury was instructed to return in the morning. So on note Tuesday, November 24th, the jury took up its deliberations, and again, questions were passed to the sheriff, who sat outside the locked door. The jury was struck on the issue of intent, and the jury could not determine intent, then the only verdict that they could return was that of not guilty. At 3.45 p.m., a message was handed to the sheriff at the jury room door that they had come to a decision. But at 4 p.m., the panel filled into the jury uh, box. Court was then reconvened, and to the surprise of everyone in the gallery, the jury foreman stood up and informed the court that the jury was unable to come to a unanimous decision. The jury panel was totally deadlocked, so they were unable to render a verdict. The judge refused to accept any of this, and he instructed the jury to resume its deliberations and come to a judgment, giving them until 6 p.m. to find a verdict, or the case would be dismissed. So then, just before 5 p.m., another official note was passed to the sheriff that the jury had again reached the decision. Darkness had fallen outside as the men and women of the jury filed into the courtroom one last time. Although they'd been deadlocked all day long and had uh, another hour to go, no one could predict their final judgment. Strangely, wall lights, uh, the wall lights flickered briefly in the courtroom uh, when the, the moment before the panel was seated. So they're trying to say that the beast had some kind of thing going on there. <laughs> it was probably just bad power. You know? <laughs> so the jury uh, found Arnie not guilty. I'm sorry. Yeah, the jury found Arnie not guilty of murder and an immense sigh swept across the bench where the Johnsons and Glatzels were sitting. But behind Arnie, another voice was heard. Uh, what it said was directed only to him and heard only by him. The chorus voice uh, said one word. It said, Beware. So again, that same thing, you know, that the whole thing started with. Uh, but to the charge of manslaughter in the first degree, the jury found Arnie guilty. Upon hearing this, Arnie's knees buckled and his lawyer had to help him stand up. His mother, Debbie, and Judy burst into tears. Arnie was given the maximum sentence possible, 10 to 20 years. So although uh, the avert phenomenon has long since ceased, the beast, or Beelzebub, remains and exerts its malevolent influence over the lives of everyone involved in the case. For example, after Mary Johnson vacated the Newtown rental house in the fall of 1980, a new family took over the property the following spring, the new tenants experienced such a siege of terror in the home that the local newspapers reported how they fled the state in the summer of 1981, vowing never to return. Another story told in the book is that of a hairdresser in Brookfield that commented to a patron how she believed in the, in the Glatzel story and hoped Arnie would win his case. This is uh, during the trial, by the way, this story took place. And at the moment she made that statement, a bolt of lightning struck the inside of the beauty salon, though it was a clear day, producing scorch marks and knocking out the electricity. That's another, I think, Warren kind of... Take that, hairdresser. Yeah. <laughs> so the Glatzels' uh, lives never really uh, returned to normal. Those who levered the original curse on the family couldn't be found, and even if they could, there was no provision for justice against curses. However, David's exorcism proved to be successful in relieving both him and Carl Jr. of direct influence by the beast, but for years after, uh, David still received messages and visitations from the entity. One incident occurred the night uh, Arnie lost his case. On that night, David suddenly woke up in the middle of the morning. Moments later, the beast walked through the bedroom wall, holding Arnie's folding knife in front of him. 
The arf was the knife was glowing, and the entity stood laughing like a maniac in front of David, then faded away slowly. Would you uh what do you think would happen to you there, Sal? See, you know what, Sammy? <laughs> you it 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 lost me when the devil said uh I, I could have killed you, but I'm not. I could have. <laughs> I could have. I could have killed you. It's the devil. He's going to kill See, that's what I mean. There's no way, if there is a devil, that he's going to let you live, let alone all of this, and let it go this far. didn't know this, but I was God the whole time. <laughs> the Mecca, the Alpha, and Omega. I've been protecting you. Blame it on Stephen Hawking. <laughs> no, no, because the Warrens... The reporters, the the police, all 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 direct this as 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 an exorcism and 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 at bad karma and the devil himself and the way the way the devil is portrayed, it's like he's an angel here. He's letting he's letting them go. He'll stop. Oh yeah, throw a little water on me. Oh yeah, throw a little oil on me. Come on, <laughs> give me a fucking break. If I was yeah, a- yeah. Hit me again. Hit me, hit me harder. Whip me. Throw some. Beat me. Piss me. Piss on me. Do whatever you want. No, I'm, I'm, Oops, I fell over. Now, now I'm now I'm getting cheeseburger angry. No, seriously, seriously. I mean, come on, dude. I don't know. Come Let's on. So David also reported that he was confronted twice by the human spirit of Alan Bono, who was dressed immaculately all in white, smoking a pipe and asking if everyone would come over to the kennels and work. Lorraine said that although Alan is unaware of his death, his appearance in all white indicates he was successful in his transition to death. I kind of hope there was some dogs like lagging behind, <laughs> like, you know, like chewing on his fucking leg. Yeah, like, right. This is what you get for running the shit kennels, bro. Yeah. We're not feeding them. <laughs> It's for that horse slop that you call food. <laughs> so in 1983, <laughs> the beast presented itself again, this time uh, to Debbie's young son, Jason, while he was in the middle of a raging fever. It sat on a throne of bats spewing fire everywhere. That's fucking awesome. And then it told Jason how it was personally responsible for the torture and killing of thousands of people during World War II. It also had a, I guess that was supposed to be Hitler, maybe? (laughs) It also then had a message to send. Uh, The entity said that because man had failed to point him out in Connecticut, what had taken place so far was just the beginning, as the entity proclaimed, I'll kill again! (laughs) He's like a serial killer. (laughs) (laughs) So perhaps the most tragic victim of this case is Arnie Johnson. Uh, The prime years of his life were lost inside a maximum security wing of the Summers Prison in Summers, Connecticut. And although the beast never possessed Arnie again, it plagued him with bizarre, threatening nightmares and occasionally came to him in physical form, usually as a black cloud. I bet you something black came to him in prison. (laughs) 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 Bubba. Give, give me your fruit cup. <laughs> <laughs> Next, Next time I want one cocktail. Fruit. <laughs> <laughs> Nasty Nick came out of left field. <laughs> no, no, Squirrel Master. Edit. <laughs> the Squirrel Master came out of left field and called me his bitch. <laughs> Everybody around here wants cocktail fruit. <laughs> 
so on the anniversary of Alan Bono's death, um, the Beast stabbed Arnie in his cell. Again, I don't think that was the Beast, but Arnie's, Arnie's lawyer lost a bid for a sentence reduction in the spring of 1982. But eventually, uh, Arnie was uh, let out after serving only five years of his sentence. So the incident led to a creation of a television film entitled The Demon Murder Case on NBC, starring Kevin Bacon, Cloris Leachman, Andy Griffith, Richard Mazur, and as the voice of the beast, Harvey Firestein. <laughs> that is a great choice for what? a demon I voice. Gotta this. You gotta find this one. Get the fuck away from me! <laughs> You gotta find this one, man. Yeah, I've been looking all over. I was pissed off because the only place I could find it was on YouTube, but there was uh, no audio for the. Uh, I was like, God Andy, damn it, Andy Griffith, come on! <laughs> Yo, he plays Ed Warren. <laughs> yeah, have you seen it before? No, but you you had it on here. I thought. No, I never had it. No, oh, never okay. never seen this one. I wish. Well, I did, not though. on Plex. I'm just yeah. saying we, was, we spoke oh, about it. If oh, it yeah. was on NBC, it couldn't have been shit. <laughs> oh, it might be fun though come on Harvey Firestein is the demon it's it, <laughs> <is> awesome <laughs> so preparations for a feature film were also eventually scrapped when the production stalled due to internal conflicts but in 1983 Gerard Brittle published The Devil in Connecticut Lorraine Warren stated that profits from the book were shared with the family sources confirmed that $2,000 was paid to the family by the book publisher like that's it for their whole story here <laughs> look at that cheap ass exorcist to rip off come on <laughs> cheap ass exorcist <laughs> fucking people man so upon the book's pub publication in 2006 by iUniverse David Glatzel and Carl Glatzel Jr. who now run a construction business sued the Warrens and Gerard Brittle and the book publishers for violating their right to privacy libel and intentional infliction of a emotional distress. Carl Jr. also claimed that the book alleged he committed criminal and abusive acts against his family and others. He said that the possession story was a hoax concocted by the Warrens to exploit the family and his brother's mental illness and that the book presented him as the villain because he did not believe in the supernatural claims. Remember when he threatened to yeah. kill everybody with his motorbike? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he also asserted that David uh, suffered from hallucinations and delusions and that the Warrens were told, the Glatzels, uh, that the story would make the family millionaires and help get Arnie out of jail, so they went along with it. Carl Glatzel Sr. also denies telling Gerard Brittle that his son was possessed. So in, the, in 1981, the cultural impact of The Exorcist was still fresh, by the way, and according to the New York Times, one of the witnesses testified that Debbie Gladsell had watched The Exorcist on TV with the rest of her family and also attended at least one of the Warrens' lectures before David began to claim his visions of the devil. So in actuality, The Exorcist may have actually influenced the entire chain of events we saw here. Thanks, William Friedkin. Yeah. Now, Arnie and uh, Debbie Johnson, who are now married, wholeheartedly support the Warren's account of demonic possession and have stated that Debbie, I'm sorry, that David and Carl Jr. are suing simply, simply for monetary purposes. So the family's kind of split here. It's kind of weird. But uh, Lorraine Warren defended her work with the family, claiming that the six priests who were in involved in the incident agreed at the time that the boy was possessed and that she, the supernatural events she described were real. Gerard Brittle, author, author of The Devil in Connecticut, says the whole uh, said he wrote the book because the family wanted the story told and that he possesses video of over 100 hours of his interviews with the family, who also signed off on the book as accurate before it went to print. Now, according to Carl Glatzel Jr., the publicity generated by the incident forced him to drop out of school and lose friends and later business opportunities. 
In 2007, he began writing a book titled Alone Through the Valley about his version of events surrounding his brother. I was unable to find like anything about this being published anywhere. So I guess, you know, hmm. almost 17 years later, he still hasn't finished that book or something. <laughs> so the case was ultimately dismissed, but the book was still removed from print. This is a devil in Connecticut, by the way with Gerard Brittle saying that he was motivated to do so because he had become fed up with Carl. So it's back in print now, uh, just speculation, but I'm guessing that's due to a nice studio payout to Carl Glatzel Jr. Mm-hmm. But for all that uh, Carl Jr. has done to say that the whole story was made up, that didn't stop him from selling the devil's rocking chair to Zach Baggins oh in 2019 for the hefty sum of $67,000. God the, damn! The king of for the douchebags. The king of the douchebags <sighs> right here. How the fuck do you do that, though, to say this is all bullshit, and then you sell a chair to someone for $67,000 and go, yeah, I'll, it's probably possessed. I'll tell you why. <laughs> because there's a lot of dumb, stupid ass fucking people out there. Yeah, that's what we've seen over and over in some I mean, of these look at things. It, look, at it, look, at hair, shit. look at that hairstyle. That hairstyle this guy has just wants, oh, wants to make me punch him in the face. Like, yeah. like I said, he's the king of douchebags. This guy. I bet like he gets into his car. Cut my life in two pieces. <laughs> this is my... I bet you he jams that in the car, Roach. <laughs> so according to Carl, he decided to sell the devil's chair because it had been in his family's possession since the 50s, but he was moving to a new home and simply didn't want to take it with him. I'd throw it in the fucking garbage then. Like, <laughs> fuck this chair. <laughs> it's an ugly chair, too. So the chair now sits in Zach Baggins' haunted museum. And on uh, May 27th, 2019, the exhibit was shut down when a tour guide by the name of Virginia posted to Twitter that, quote unquote, no longer than 15 minutes ago, a lady lost her vision on my tour and passed out in the hallway. Her eyes rolled around and she began crying and didn't know why she was crying. Five tour guides have been crying, myself included. So uh, she was so affected by this, she immediately ran to Twitter, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Crying your eyeballs out, and <laughs> this is what happened. I'll tell you what. This place is a destination for me. If uh, if I ever go back to Vegas, I definitely wanted to go to Zach's Museum. I would. Uh, I've had a friend who went there, and he said uh, the tour is great. you got to do the VIP tour and see the whole building. The whole building has a story to its own, too. So. He's got a lot of uh, like serial killer memorabilia in there, yeah, too. Yeah, he does. He does. He's got a, a whole bunch of everything. It's It's... I guess similar to like Warren's museum, but bigger and more artifacts. I think I heard either forty-four or fifty-four dollars for a ticket for admission. Seriously, <laughs> for the base oh, price, yeah. yeah. Wow, it's I'm like, sure he's probably got the thing where you listen to the audio thing too. Like I, a I, it might, it could be self-guided, or mm-hmm. they actually have guides that take you through the place. But uh, yeah, it's a destination of mine. I got to get there sooner or later. I would go. Why not? I would. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I would check it out. Now, uh, another post, also on Twitter, uh, by Baggins himself a few minutes later, confirmed the temporary closure and stated that moments before they opened the exhibit, uh, him and his assistants witnessed a plug get yanked out of the wall socket by itself, and then the door to the chair slowly opened. You can uh, see this on, um, I think it's on YouTube, the video of this. It's weird, though, because as the door is opening, it cuts. <laughs> like, the video cuts. Like, there was uh, something fishy going on Like it was on edited? There. Yeah. So according to Baggins, the second major activity attributed to this old chair that caused the shutdown involved six people, all sharing the same disturbing, uncontrollable crying again during the short time he opened the exhibit, one of them being a guest who also collapsed directly above the devil's rocking chair on the stairs. Uh, There really isn't much that you can find regarding recent information or even pictures of most of the people involved in this story. 
But on a sad note, director Michael Shavs direct did confirm in an interview that Debbie Glatzel passed away from cancer just before the film's release. It's a bummer. Now, Martin Manella, who uh, still practices law, was interviewed about his involvement in the movie. All he was concerned about was how they depicted him in the film. And he told the reporter, he's like, they tried to tell my guy they're using a woman. <laughs> and they did use a woman in the movie. <laughs> it's like, they cut his ass out. So as for David himself, since the events in The Conjuring, he has avoided putting himself in the limelight. So his exact thoughts on the matter are unclear. But Carl revealed that though David had a hard time dealing with all the attention, his mental health has since recovered. Carl Jr. hasn't spoken much about the controversy as of late, but he did reiterate past statements when he told the Hartford Current that the supposed hoax put him and his family through a living hell. His issue with the story and the Warrens is likely the reason why he wasn't included in The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. And it's there that we're going to hold until the next episode where we'll be focusing on the first human villain in The Conjuring universe, the occultist, Isla Kastner. Okay, that's an ugly dude. Now, is this a real person? This per in this movie? N or no, or Isla Kastner? Yeah. No, that's the, uh, it's kind of, from what I would say, the kind of the, you know, the family that put the curse on the. Oh, the, the, okay. Yeah, but it's, it, you know, she's just made so, up for the movie. Okay, all right. Like I said, kind of like Malthus or Valak. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, we're going to be covering her, and uh, that's that for, that wraps up our possession of David Glatzel and, uh, you know, the Arnie Johnson murder trial. And Demon the Amy Dua case. And the Conjuring Universe. Well, we still got one, like I said, one more of the occultists we're going to cover last, well, yes. next week. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that's pretty much, yeah, all the all the true stories that we're going to be telling uh, from the Conjuring universe. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed it, Woo! folks. It's been <laughs> a, long, a couple, long couple long, long episodes. Yeah, that's a long one. But uh, enjoy uh, those films, too. Yeah. And uh, we're going to come back this year, do a couple episodes on some horror filmmakers and their body of work. And, uh, and their posters, Mikey. Yeah, we got to do it. We still have yet to do that episode on uh, yeah. the history of horror yeah. movie posters. Yeah. Uh, that I think that's going to be interesting. So yeah, definitely. Keep listening, folks, and thank you for subscribing, streaming, listening on iTunes and Spotify, liking us on Instagram and Facebook, and don't forget we got that email. Sam was email. Last three rows of horror at gmail.com. Keep it horrorific. Yeah, like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs> Later. Bye bye.